Introducing Cryptek's new hatch jacket. The jacket is secured with a full snap closure system along with two snap pockets. Fitted cuffs and waistband to ensure a perfect fit every time. Made with 100% polyester shell and finished with a DWR water repelling treatment, the hatch is made with a quilted design and no hood to reduce bulk, making it versatile enough for any adventure. 200 grams of Primaloft synthetic insulation make the hatch light, quick drying and ultra warm. Coming in two colors, the hatch jacket, only at Cryptech.com. Leadheads, we are back with another episode of the Talking Lead Podcast. I'm your host, Lefty. And we are in our 10th year of legicating the uneducated here at the Talking Lead Podcast. <laughs> you liked that, didn't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Trademark registered by Talking Lead. Um, so yeah, we're here. We're back. Um, I took a little break. You guys know uh, a couple of weeks off there. You are probably longing for our episodes, but if you tuned into our social media, you were catching our live feeds and uh, all the cool stuff that we were doing from Sturgis during the Gun Fest, the first annual Gun Fest there at the Buffalo Chip in Sturgis, South Dakota during Bike Week of all weeks. <laughs> and uh, it was a good time. So if you're listening to this episode, it will be the episode prior to this where we talk about our travels to South Dakota uh, and all the fun and follies that we experienced during our trip. Uh, it was a good time with the crew from Caltech and American Zealot Productions. So go check that episode out. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it quite a bit. This episode, we're switching gears. We're going from motorcycles to submarines. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what we do here. We shake it up on this podcast. You know, we talk about anything and everything because we want to show the diversity of the firearms community that it's not just the good old Bubba network that the liberal media makes us out to be, but that everyone, all walks of life, liberal, conservatives, all colors, all religions enjoy their their firearms and their, their Second Amendment rights here in the United States of America. And... Um, we do that by having a diverse guests on the show and diverse companies and diverse products. And um, this guest that we have on this episode uh, is a former Navy nuclear submarine officer. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Uh, he is a best-selling author uh, in the, the realm of leadership and motivation. And he has a podcast and uh, his books, he's got Three books that I know of uh, that are out. We're going to talk about his books. We're going to talk about submarines. And oh, by the way, he's also an avid bird hunter. And 
a advocate for uh, our Second Amendment rights. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome in John Rennie to the podcast. Did I say hey, your last name right? Yeah, Rennie. 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 Like a penny. Yeah, yeah. Rennie like a penny. Yeah, easy. <laughs> I like that. I like that. John, welcome in. We're uh, we're very grateful to have you join us, and uh, especially on such short notice. We kind of set this up um, real quick, last minute. Um, like I said, I've been out of town, and I'm I'm doubling up to catch up. So thank you so much for taking the time to, to join the Leadhead Brigade. Yeah, it's great to be here. Absolutely. Where are you uh, joining us from? I'm in uh, Wake Forest, North Carolina, which is just outside of Raleigh. Oh, beautiful North Carolina. That's a gorgeous area up there. Is that where you grew up? No, no, I'm from New England originally. I grew up in New Hampshire, uh, went to school in Massachusetts, and then I was in the military. So I moved around quite a bit. And then then I spent 22 years in corporate America doing the same thing, moving around quite a bit. So, uh, and uh, yeah, now we've been in North Carolina quite some time now. We've kind of found a a happy medium between too hot and too cold, I think. Yeah. So so you went from government work to corporate work to to your own individual private uh, in ownership of your own company. And that's kind yeah. of the, the, the steps that I followed also. I, I worked, I didn't do military or anything like that, but I was, I worked for the government. I did some government work uh, for several years. Then I decided I want to get into the corporate side of things. And I did corporate America for several years. And then, you know, after seeing all the, the dubiousness and, you know, all the, uh, I guess, incompetence <laughs> that I was <laughs> experiencing with the people that were above me, uh, I decided, you know what, I could do a whole lot better on my own. And uh, I branched yep. out and, and did the kind of the same. So different different uh, industries that we that we were in, but we kind of walk in the same path of life. So uh, yep. uh, we want to hear your story uh, about how you how you got started with uh, with your career in the military, moving on to the corporate, and then moving on into the private uh, sector there. Uh, but first, John, I kind of prepared you for this beforehand. Oh, jeez. <laughs> it's time for the Talking Lead Trains and Planes segment, where we uh, take care of some jack wagons and we honor some heroes. So, Gunny, bring that train in. Hoorah, Semper do or die, hold them high at 8th and I. It is time for the Talking Lead Jack Wagon of the Week, so brace yourself, baby. So the Gunny has brought the train in, and uh, we we got some, some Jack Wagons that we want to take care of. And uh, as I like to do, I like to start with our guests. So, John, if, you, if you've got a Jack Wagon in mind that you would like to call out, uh, now's the time to do it. <laughs> or if you want well, me to uh, warm you up, I'd be happy to do that too. Uh, no, I was just thinking about, um, uh, I don't know, around Christmas time, there was a CEO who fired 900 of his employees uh, right before Christmas uh, via a Zoom call. Oh my uh, I wrote about it on my uh, podcast. Forget the guy's name. It doesn't matter what his name is. But uh, if you're going to fire 900 people before Christmas, you probably uh, are a jack wagon, I would imagine. No doubt about it. That reminds me of, did you ever watch Christmas Vacation, the movie Christmas Vacation? Oh, yeah, that's the best. Yeah. It's the best. You know, so uh, not, is it Christmas Vacation or was it? Yeah, it was Christmas Vacation where his boss yep. like, cut out the Christmas bonuses. <laughs> you got the Jelly of the Month Club. The Jelly of the Month Club, yeah. So even worse, he fired people. So yeah, that guy is definitely deserving of the Toggle Jackwagon Jack Wagon train. 
no doubt yeah. about it. Yeah, so, especially with no no warning, uh, you know, just yeah, yeah. That guy's got a special place in hell reserved for him. Yeah, I think so. No doubt about it. So my jack wagon, and you, it kind of the jack wagon and a leadhead brigade, brigade hero rolled into one, uh, kind of a one shot deal. So I'm sure a lot of you you listeners are familiar with the. Um, I guess the hearings or whatever they want to call where they've been putting several firearms manufacturers feet to the fire and, you know, having them come and testify in front of Congress. Uh, I think Daniel defense is one Ruger might be one. And then Smith and Wesson. Uh, Are you familiar with that, John? Just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's stemming from the recent um, uh, mass shootings that, uh, that have happened during the Biden administration, I might add. Um, So, Smith & Wesson put out a public statement. The CEO of Smith & Wesson put out a, a public statement here. And I want to read this. And, and the jack wagons are, the, are the, the, comp, or the people and the organizations that are trying to um, ruin our Constitution, ruin our Second Amendments, you know, our constitutional rights, especially our Second Amendment by all their dubious means that they're, you know, that they're doing here. And, and it's all political. You know, it's very transparent what they're trying to do. So let me read this statement from Smith & Wesson CEO. It says, Amid an unprecedented and unjustified attack on the firearms industry, Smith & Wesson Brands Incorporated President CEO Mark Smith responded Monday, and this would have been, uh, I don't have an actual date on it. Today is the 24th, which is a Wednesday. So I don't know if it was this Monday or last Monday. But anyway, it says a number of politicians and their lobbying partners in the media have recently sought to disparage Smith & Wesson. Some have had the audacity to suggest that after they have vilified, undermined, and defunded law enforcement for years, supported prosecutors who refused to hold criminals accountable for their actions, overseeing the decay of our country's mental health infrastructure, and generally promoted a culture of lawlessness, which that is exactly what they have been doing. And you see me looking around, looking for my glasses. <laughs> I'm going to need my glasses for this. Uh, Smith & Wesson and other fire manufacturers are somehow responsible for the crime wave that has predictably resulted from these destructive policies. But they are the ones to blame for the surge in violence and lawlessness. And they seek to avoid any responsibility for the crisis of violence they have created by attempting to shift the blame to Smith & Wesson, other firearms manufacturers, and law-abiding gun owners, which we see it daily, constantly, them pointing the fingers at, at us, law-abiding, responsible firearm owners. It is no surprise that the cities suffering most from violent crime are the very same cities that have promoted irresponsible soft on crime policies that often treat criminals as victims and victims as criminals. Many of these same cities also maintain the strictest gun laws in the nation, but rather than confront the failure of their policies, certain politicians have sought more laws restricting the Second Amendment rights of law-abiding citizens while simultaneously continuing to undermine our institutions of law and order and to suppress the truth, some, that, some now seek to prohibit fire manufacturers and supporters of the Second Amendment 
from advertising products in a manner designed to remind law-abiding citizens that they have a constitutional right to bear arms in defense of themselves and their families. And we've talked about this on the show many times about how we are being shadow banned, the firearms industry, anything firearms related uh, on these social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, I'm sure Twitter. I don't do much Twitter, but um, definitely uh, YouTube as well. So that's just kind of an example. And then he goes on to say, to be clear, a Smith & Wesson firearm has never broken into a home. A Smith & Wesson firearm has never assaulted a woman out of, for a late night run in the city. A Smith & Wesson firearm has never carjacked an unsuspecting driver stopped at a traffic light. So what he means by that is a firearm is an inanimate object. It, it's not alive. It cannot do these things on its own. It has to be willed to do that by a human, by a person. So that's what he, he means by that. So he goes on to say, Instead, Smith & Wesson provides these citizens with the means to protect themselves and their families. We are proud of our 170-year history. We are proud of the commitment of our employees to making a quality product. We are proud to provide law-abiding citizens and law enforcement, our customers, with the tools to provide their security and independence. We are proud of our responsible business practices. We will continue to work alongside law enforcement, community leaders, and lawmakers who are genuinely interested in creating safe neighborhoods. We will engage those who genuinely seek productive discussions, not a means of scoring political points. We will continue informing law-abiding citizens that they have a constitutionality-protected right to defend themselves and their families. We will never back down in our defense of the Second Amendment. Smith & Wesson Empowering Americans. And that was a direct quote from uh, Mark Smith, the CEO, president of Smith & Wesson. And I, I mean, that sums it up perfect. And I don't know why more manufacturers haven't come out in this manner to fight against, to speak up against all the lobbying, all the, the gun grabbing that's going on and has been going on. Um, but if we get more pushback like this from our industry, then, you know, that's the only way that we can, we can make change and, and keep our Second Amendment rights. So he is my hero for this episode of the Talking Lead uh, Planes and Trains. So welcome to Lead Force One. That's that's <laughs> what our Leadhead Brigade heroes get a ride on. Uh, is this nice big cushy uh, 747 jumbo tricked out jet, <laughs> French Corinthian leather seats. It's got a nice bar, you know, top top of the line mills. So that's my hero. Have you got any heroes? Uh, you know, I had a, I had him on our podcast, a guy by the name of Ken Blanchard, who who's written. I've like heard of Ken Blanchard. Yeah. yeah, he's written like 65 books on leadership and and he's, you know, getting old now. He's in the 70s now. And uh, but he's still writing books. He's still trying to to uh, 
I don't know, just tell, teach people how to be great leaders. And uh, I look up to someone who's been in the industry a long time and uh, he's been, he's been preaching a good message for a long time. He's still doing it, still writing books. And, uh, and he's someone that uh, I've read his books when I was a young manager and, and now as a, as an older manager, <laughs> older leader, I'm still reading his books. So he's, he's, he's one of the, my, one of my heroes. Very good. And you had him on your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about, let's talk about your podcast. What is the name of your podcast? Uh, my podcast is called Deep Leadership, and uh, we it's it's uh, I have guests on all the time, and and I have CEOs, military leaders, entrepreneurs, uh, authors, researchers, uh, and it's all based on the subject of leadership. So, yeah, what are, what are some of the best practices? What are some of the theories? What uh, who's doing it right? Who's doing it wrong? How do, how does leadership change now? You know, pre COVID, mid COVID, post COVID, uh, we we went through all that uh, over the past two and a half years. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, so it's all just bringing on uh, really experts and and picking their brains and and uh, you know trying to find the best, you know, the best ideas to be able to lead people better. And that's what it's all about. So, you know, it, the purpose of the podcast is to build a world with better bosses. That's essentially what we do. And nice. uh, it's all about leadership. Yep. Very good. And that's called Deep Leadership. Yep. And I'm, I'm assuming that's on any podcasting app our listeners yeah, can it's go. On it. It's on it all. Yeah, there isn't. I think we're on every one of them now. So Okay. And yeah. then your website, I know there's links uh, from your website. And if you ladheads want to go to... Uh, John Rennie, it's J-O-N-R-E-N-N-I-E.com. Uh, and yeah, there's John, John S. Rennie.com, my middle initial. In the oh, I missed the S. I'm sorry. John, J-O-N-S-R-E-N-N-I-E.com. And uh, it's got You've links got to glasses his, on too. You, I can't. I can't I, there's no excuse for that one. <laughs> was I was just being lazy, man. I was being lazy. But uh, there's links to his books, his podcast. He does. Uh, he's got a blog. And then uh, there's uh, links to, and you've been on it, tons and tons of other podcasts. Uh, I was just going through the list there, and yeah, mostly like, Holy leadership, cow. And, mostly leadership and business podcasts. I think it's the first time I've been on a on a, a gun podcast. And I think when I when we were emailing back and forth, I thought it was lead talking lead i i talk about lead you talk about lead so yeah but i mean we do uh get into exactly what you are, are talking about because the whole thing on the show is you know we like to keep it positive uh by having people on that encourage you and make you a better person and being a better leader is going to make you a better person in general uh, yeah, so. absolutely. You know, think about it. We're, we're leading all the time, whether it's uh, in our family as a father or a husband or a, or a wife or uh, and, 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 and in community organizations, you know, uh, you you might teach Sunday school, you might, uh, you know, lead a Boy Scout troop, what have you. But you're we are all, you know, Little League or soccer. We're all leaders uh, in our everyday walk in life. And so how do we be more effective? And and what I like to talk about, most of my books are based on the idea that leadership is a people business. So it's about people. It's about relationships. It's about building relationships, building trust. And uh, yeah, it's kind of old fashioned. But it's kind of missing because I think we, we we're hurting in leadership these days. I mean, you know, you you probably talk a lot about the politics of the day, but it's easy to look at our politicians and see a lack of leadership. Uh, for Absolutely. example, when you see when you see mandates, I always say that's a failure in leadership to lead. Right. And when you inspire people to do something, that's one thing. But when you when you when you recognize they don't do it and you have to mandate things and you have to make create enemies uh, so that uh 
you know, and you, you, uh, you know, you, you lower the, the value of the people that, uh, uh, you know, are not following your, your, uh, your mandates, uh, then you're not leading, you know, you're basically a dictator at that point. And, uh, so yeah, we've seen a lot in po- uh, politics for a long time, to be honest, it's been, yeah. but it, it seems to be getting worse, to be honest. So it does, it does. And it seems, you know, in my 51 years on this, this planet and, you know, going through the different uh, political climates, it it's definitely shifted and it's changing. And in my opinion, it does seem to be getting worse in, instead of better. And, you know, I don't know if that's with the advent of social media, you know, or, or what it is, but um, there's definitely been a, a drastic change in uh, not only our country's leadership, but you know, even with some of the in yourself being in the the corporate uh, world nowadays, you know, seeing how some of these companies uh, are being run, so definitely um, uh, noticeable from from my my standpoint. Yeah, you know, like we were talking about our our uh, jack wagons. Uh, you know, the, the guy <laughs> I mentioned was his name is uh, I, I forgot what his name was when, I, when you asked me what his his name was Vishal Garg, and he led a company, a mortgage company called Better dot com. He's his personal net worth is four billion dollars, four <laughs> billion with a B, and he's the one that laid off nine hundred employees uh, uh, right before Christmas. And uh, that's the kind of leadership we have in corporate America. And I'm trying to make I'm trying to change that. You know, I'm trying to bring up the next generation leaders to have some value, some integrity, some uh, some faith in people uh, and, uh, you know, not create the next, um, you know, egocentric uh, micromanagers. A lot of what we have in corporate today. So let's talk about your, uh, you know, your your travels to becoming the uh, the leader that you are today uh and let's let's take it way back john let's take it back to your childhood (laughs) so uh you grew up on the east coast is that right yeah i grew up in a a small town well it's it's the the largest city north of boston it's manchester new hampshire but it's only a hundred thousand people there so fairly small city Mm -hmm. uh grew up there my all four of my grandparents were born in that city. My parents were born in that city. I was born in that city. It was the, it was it's a blue collar city where most people, you know, you're born there, you live there, you die there. So not right. a lot of people uh, launch themselves from Manchester, New Hampshire, into anything much, but much. But um, but I had uh, the fortune of having uh, two grandfathers who served in World War II, one in the Army, one in the Navy. And I think listening, you know, as a as a child, listening to their stories you know, in my mind of adventure, you know, kind of leaving the, the, the confines of, of, of my little city and going and do these amazing things around the world. Um, I said to myself, well, that's, you know, what I want to do, right? I want to do, I want to, I want to do something amazing. I don't want to just, you know, live in this town. And so um, I got fascinated early on with the idea of submarines. Uh, my, my grandfather uh, on one side who was in the Navy was involved in some pretty historic battles in the North Atlantic against German U-boats. Mm. And fortunately, his uh, destroyer escort uh, came out on top. But I remember hearing those stories and thinking to myself, the idea of an underwater warship and the idea of being stealth, be able to sneak up on shipping. And and uh, so I, as a as a as a child, as a you know teenager, I was fascinated with the World War II stories. And, and what era uh, did you yeah. grow up in? So I'm 55. So okay. you know, I'm growing up pre pre Reagan. 
Uh, and uh, so I'm 51, I mean, so we're about the same. Yeah. Same so, so when I, as a freshman in in high school, that's when Reagan took over and you know started calling the uh, the Soviet Union the evil empire. Started saying we're gonna we're gonna win the war the Cold War. Uh, and then he said something that that really sparked my, you know, a child's imagination. He said, and submarines will play a key part in that victory. And I was like, all right, sign me up. Where do we go? I, I, and as a high school freshman, that's all I wanted to do. Really? I, from that point on, I wanted to serve on the boats. So I wanted to be an officer. Even after and- watching Top Gun, <laughs> I mean, you still went the Navy route, but you didn't want to be a, an aviator. You wanted to be a submariner, huh? So I spent uh, you know, my uh, my freshman year in college, uh, between my freshman and sophomore, no, it was my freshman year in college, I was in the Navy through ROTC, and I actually went down to Pensacola and did some pilot training for a week. And at the end of that, I was like, no, 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 that's not for me. So, you know, I'd rather be under the ocean than in the air somewhere, you know, at least under the ocean, get you can get to the surface pretty easily. Uh, <laughs> if you run, you run out of propulsion, you're, you're going down fast. Right, you know, you're going to hit hard. Yeah. So I didn't fall into the, uh, the, the, the Top Gun trap, uh, although I had the same uniform as those guys. So, I did. You know, I, <laughs> oh, you did. A lot of people did. But I had the same cool uniform, the choker whites and all that. So oh, that, yeah. that did help with the ladies. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Very nice. So right out of high school, you joined the Navy? Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it, to get to become an officer, you have to um, – especially on a submarine, you have to have a technical degree. You have to go to college and have a technical degree. So that's the thing I learned in high school. You know, I talked to my guidance counselor. I remember I went up to him and said, hey, I want to be a submarine officer. What do I do? And the guy was like, I don't know. You're the first person ever said that to me. <laughs> but to his credit, he did the research and said, well, you got to have a good technical. Uh, you got to study math and science, obviously. And then you have to have you have to go to college, get a good technical degree uh, if you want to get to the fleet, um, because you have to qualify as a nuclear engineer, which which is what I did. So I, I, uh, I did pretty good in high school, got into a pretty good uh, engineering school. I went to Worcester Polytech in, in Worcester, Mass. And I studied engineering, something. Uh, and, and again, I should point out that my family is blue collar, like no one went to college and, uh, you know, and no one, certainly no one became an engineer and certainly no one was a submarine officer. So sure. I was doing stuff that was way outside of what, you know, traditional my family did. So uh, but uh, yeah, so I went through our, I got an ROTC scholarship four years. I uh, did four years engineering school. Then I got my commission and went to the fleet at that point. Okay. And yeah. and how many years did you spend in the the Navy? I was in for five years active duty right out of college. Right out of college, very nice. Yeah. And and what did you do on the nuclear submarine? What was your specialty? So I was what they call a line officer, and line officer is someone that's being trained to a one day take over command. So you, you end up having multiple different jobs. So for the time I was on board for five years, I had three different jobs. So my first job, I was the reactor controls officer. So I was responsible for all the men that uh, maintained and operated all the equipment around the reactor, all the all the electronic equipment. Mm-hmm. And then my next role, I was the machinery division officer. So I had all I had the entire engine room was my responsibility. And then uh, I became the missile officer. So I had the twenty four. Uh, I can say it now, nuclear missiles we were carrying were under my responsibility. Oh, wow. That's a huge responsibility. It is, especially when you're like 23 years old. 23-year-old in charge of 24 (laughs) nuclear bombs. (laughs) It's wild. Yeah. Yeah, it's wild. So So how many different submarines did you serve on? 
I was just on one. I was on the USS Tennessee the whole time. She was a brand yes. new Ohio class. Yeah, submarine. USS yeah, Tennessee. I, you like Tennessee? That's where <laughs> that's where I'm at, baby. <laughs> All right. All right. Go Vols. Yeah, so we we actually have uh, orange in our in our you know our patch our uh, USS Tennessee patches. It's got a salute to the the volunteers in our uh, patch. That's but, cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, I got to get one of those. Yeah, she was she was a brand new Ohio class submarine, first Ohio class submarine for the East Coast. Um, she was brand new when I got to her, so she made a lot of deployments, and she's still operating today, which is amazing. And I'm calling her her. Because AP boat. just came out to say that uh, you can't call ships hers anymore. So, and I say, screw that. Um, <laughs> that's that's the way it's always <laughs> been. Always been hers. <laughs> Boats so. have always been hers, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, she's a great. Uh, she's Her a great boat. Naval um, vessels, I'll right. say. Yeah. Exactly. So a great boat. And um, yeah, it was just a uh, just awesome time. Really enjoyed. I did seven seven patrols. Seven. Um, seven yeah seven patrols during the end of the cold war i got to see the cold war come to an end while i was uh while i was on board so it was kind of neat to be a part of that part of history essentially so let's so. talk about you say ohio class um there are different yeah. classes of submarines so kind of educate us on on that aspect of a submarine well in in the u.s navy there's three types of submarines they're the fast attack submarines these are typically the smallest and 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 the fastest of, of boats they typically don't carry uh, nuclear weapons, uh, but they are meant for uh, to protect fleets and to go after uh, enemy shipping. So these are called fast attack. We have an SSGN, which are guided missile uh, um, uh, submarines, mm -hmm. and these are they're actually uh, they're ballistic missile submarines that have been converted into uh, into missile submarines where they're launching conventional missiles. Uh, and they also deploy Navy SEALs. So the SSGN is a platform that deploys Navy SEALs, and it shoots a lot of uh, missiles like Tomahawk missiles at, you know, typically land targets. And then uh, the final type, the type I was on, was a ballistic missile submarine, which is carrying the large uh, nuclear weapons that are a big part of, you know, our, our strategic deterrence during the Cold War and then during, um, and now, of course, I don't know what we call now. I don't know what now anymore, is. But, I mean, we'll know but, 10 years from now, they'll have a name for it, I'm sure. Yeah. So, you know, the Russians uh, were our enemies, then they became our friends, and now they're our enemies, I guess. I guess. I don't know. I can't keep track of it. It seemed to be everybody's enemy, but uh, China's. Right. Know. Exactly. Exactly. Is, so, is this a picture of the USS Tennessee right here? Well, absolutely. That's it. Yeah. I spent a lot of time on that bridge. So, yeah. And this is the bridge up here? Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the bridge, and okay. those are the various periscopes and radars and things like that. Well, I don't see any radar deployed, but yeah. So I was trying to find a really good picture of it, but um, you don't really see many pictures of a sub underwater. I haven't been able to find those either. Submerged. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's usually dark under there. That's why. Yeah, but um, you know, with today's technology, you think we'd have something. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I had an opportunity to have uh, the former head of SEAL Team Two on my podcast, and he said, "Yeah, he goes, I love submarines." I said, "The most," he says, "The most amazing thing was was uh, was parachuting down on 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 a submerged one in in the um, in the Caribbean. You could see it all the way under the water. The, the water was so clear." Oh, wow. and I'm thinking, I thought I was cool. That guy's like super cool. So <laughs> diving 
you know, jumping out of a plane towards a submerged submerged. Yeah, I've had several uh, Navy SEALs on this show, um, and one particularly that's in that's in your realm of expertise, the leadership um, industry. Uh, Jay Redman, are you familiar with Jason Redman? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I I am. Yeah, so he's been on. I've had him on a couple of times, and uh, I mean, his. his speeches and his motivation are very infectious. Uh, really good um, speaker. Really, really liked having him on. Um, yeah. Commander uh, Coulter, uh, who I've been working with um, on some projects that I can't talk about yet, but we're going to talk about them on upcoming projects. And uh, he's been on the show a couple of times, so you let heads uh, that are familiar with uh, Commander Coulter um, know probably what I'm talking about. But, uh, yeah, so what was the guy that you had? What was his name? I may know him. Jack Riggins. R-I-G-G-I-N-S? Yeah. There it is. Jack Jack Riggins. So Jack Riggins, he was on your podcast, so people can go and and check out that episode with Jack. I've not had Jack on. I'm not familiar with with Jack. Oh, Yotto, he's a good good guy. I would love to. I would love to. Um, Like I said, I've had several. I mean, in 10 years of doing this podcast, I can't remember everybody I've had on, but... Um, That's my problem right now. I've had, uh, yeah, I'm starting to forget people that have been on the show. It's fun to, <laughs> it's actually fun to listen to old episodes. You're like, oh, that was such a great conversation. But yeah, like, I forgot so that, you know, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Kind of deal. Exactly. Um, but um, the White Settle, uh, who is one of the the owners of Seal One, is a CLP uh, product, another former Navy Seal, and they're one of our sponsors uh, as Excellent. well. But I love hearing their their stories. We had. Well, he goes by Jack Carr, you know, Jack Carr, the, the author, we've had him on and just listening to their stories, man, it's just to, to just fantasize through them and, and hear the stories that they've had and, you know, what, compare it to some of these movies that you see. Um, it's just, it's amazing. So you said you had the opportunity to work with some, some seals on your submarines in what capacity, um, yeah, did you interact I, I did with them? Not. We, we were we were uh, ballistic missile submarines, so we did not carry the seals on our on our mm. platform. So, but but a lot of the former Ohio class boats that were set up for ballistic, they were converted to uh, to guided missile uh, boats, and they carry they carry that. If you'll see, if you ever see a picture of a Ohio class submarine that looks like it's got a looks like got a tin can on the top of it, so that's actually the seal delivery uh, vehicle. So that's what they use to. Uh, the seals will deploy out of. So uh, we didn't have that uh, that function. We didn't operate with seals on our on our. So platform. you didn't shoot so. them through the torpedo launchers. <laughs> no, 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 we, no. Sadly, that would have been fun, but no, yeah. we did not. So we were we carried uh, conventional torpedoes and then nuclear missiles. So I we got were, you. We were the. Uh, uh, our mission was to hide with pride. Hide with pride. Stay there. Stay undetected. Yeah, yeah. We we talked, you know, before, yesterday we were talking, you know, concealed carry. We're, we're kind of that concealed carry. We're that weapon just in case. Hey, that's a great way to put it. I was looking for yeah. one of those um, that might be like the ones you're talking about, but I, I don't Yeah, know. look up, uh, if you look up SSGN, um, uh, and I'm trying to think, of, like, I think the Florida is an SSGN uh, now. It's been converted. But if you look up an SSGN, we didn't have the SSGNs when I was in. So this is a recent thing. You know, as the Cold War <clears> ended, we were like, well, we've got these amazing platforms. What are we going to do with them? Uh, and then they created these SSGNs. I think the USS Florida is an example of them. There's USS Ohio is one of them. There you go. You see that. Oh, this thing that, here? Uh, 
Yeah, that's where they'll ah. the, uh, the seals out of. So yeah, okay. the same exact platform I was on, but it's been modified sure. to carry conventional missiles and uh, to deliver seals. And I believe the USS Ohio actually has two of those on its backside. So, um, which I think is unique. So, uh, but I don't know much about. I, I've interviewed some SSGN's uh, officers uh, on my podcast, but I have not. I wish I wish they were around during my time. I definitely would have. Uh, been on wanted I would want to be on that platform because it's pretty unique so they can go in in a conventional war and they can they can launch a lot of Tomahawk missiles deploy Navy SEALs and so it's the kind of the kind of uh, warfare that we're into these days it's much it's it's been converted into a much more usable platform than the than the ballistic missile boats gotcha so um, you said you served five years so what year was it that you did you retire I would is that how we would no, I just got out in 1994. Okay. I, 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 you know, my five just year. Did your five year up. deal? Yeah, and part of the reason was um, I absolutely love what I did, but uh, nobody senior of me, like all the senior officers and senior enlisted, were, had all been divorced at least once. So <laughs> this was not a business for having a family and yeah. uh, and being um, having a normal life. So you, we spent a lot of time out at sea, and back then we were completely isolated. So there was no communication whatsoever. So no email, no phone calls. You were just gone for three months, and then you came back. So. Uh, it was a different lifestyle, and it was um, not good for marriages and families. So I, I got out, went into Absolutely. the corporate world, like a lot of people do, um, you know. So, but I, I really enjoyed my time, and it was kind of fun to be there, you know, to see, to really to see the Soviets disappear from the Atlantic Ocean. They went from having a ton of submarines and ships all over the Atlantic to having virtually none by the time I got out. And. Why? Why was that? Because they just decommissioned them, or were they getting? Yeah, they ran sinking? out of money. <laughs> they were just yeah. sinking. <laughs> they couldn't. They couldn't pay their sailors. They couldn't feed their sailors. They couldn't keep their boats maintained, and and so they disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. So, what was the longest uh, deployment underwater that you? One hundred and ten days. One hundred and ten days. Yeah. And how many people were on your submarine? We had one hundred and fifty-five uh, <laughs> in the crew. So. It was like 15 officers and then the, re you know, and the rest, uh, enlisted sailors. Is that, is that one of the largest submarines? It is. The yeah. The, the, the Ohio class is the largest U S submarine. you know, it doesn't, I mean, the Soviets had bigger boats, but, um, this was, this is the biggest U S boat. Yeah. So being underwater for that long, that amount of time, uh, what kind of effects does that have? You know, you hear about the astronauts and being out in the, yeah. you know, the, the weightlessness and, you know, all that, that it, it does things to the bones and to the, the muscles. And are there any adverse effects? Yeah. I mean, if one of the things that's weird is you don't have any um, distance vision. You lose your, your uh, farsightedness because you never use it because uh, you're when you're underwater for that long. Um, so it takes you a while to get that back again. The other thing is... Um, when you when you first get into a car after being on a submarine that long, is everything seems so much faster. You're just like, oh, slow down, you know, because <laughs> your down. body your body <laughs> has not gone that fast because uh, it's 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 a slow moving vessel basically. It's not a very speedy vessel, but um, so your things seem to be faster. Um, the other thing is, but you have no you have no reference points to to the speed or anything. Cause I, I don't guess you have like windows and things that you no, can look there's out. No, there's no windows. You have no reference on speed. Um, no. Uh, uh, and, uh, 
uh, yeah, so that's that's a little bit. Uh, it's it takes a while to get used to. The other thing is, you'll notice you'll be taking a shower on land, and you'll notice you're still swaying to the <laughs> to the ocean. But there's no ocean. You're like, why am I still swaying? So it takes you a while to um, get your land legs back after you've been out to sea that long. And, yeah. Uh, but uh, the other thing too is, so inside a submarine, if you can imagine 155 dudes right so what do you think that smelt like on board right? oh my gosh uh, worse than our rv trip to uh sturgis <laughs> i'm sure <laughs> so yeah you're talking burps and farts and yeah. and everything you know under stinky the feet 100 smelly armpits you name it but you get to the point where you just get used to it and so when you smell fresh air it actually smells horrible when they first open up the hatches you're like ah this, this is terrible what is that smell <laughs> and so you get used to it and uh your clothes your clothes will smell like that. The the uniforms we wear um, under under sea, these one piece uh, coveralls we wear, they they smell like that. That summer, and you can't get that smell out of them. Even if you dry clean, you can't get that out. You can't get it out. It's just uh, even today, I, I've got some in the attic. They still smell like the boat. You just can't get that. Bring smell back out. memories, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, it does. It does. But it it stinks. And uh, but it's you get used to it and uh, it, you, you don't even notice it, you know? And the other thing is too, the, uh, you know, there's always air moving around on the submarine. So we have mm -hmm. ventilation fans running at 60 Hertz all the time that there's a hum and you cannot get, when it goes silent, like when those fans go off, that's, that's our biggest fear. And so sometimes at night when you're back home, you can't hear that, those fans and you can't sleep. You're like, where's the, you know, where's right. that? Hum? You start panicking a little bit. It's a constant background uh, through the, your entire day and night and every, every day, every night for months on end. So, yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you get used to that, that frequency, you know, and I'm sure that yeah. does something with yeah. your brain waves and you know, the harmonics of your, your body. Definitely. Yeah, I don't know. But um, yeah, it, it takes a while to get used to living on land again. So not know? having night and day references either. How how did how did that affect your sleep cycles and? Yeah, so the, the it's interesting. Uh, back then, we operate on on we had four shifts. We had four six hour watches essentially. So so that meant we had we had four meals a day. We had breakfast, lunch, we had dinner, and then we had mid rats, which was the midnight ration. So you ate at six, noon, six, and midnight. So you you ate every six hours and you stood watch every six hours. So most of the only time you knew you. The only time you really knew if it was night or day was what they were serving. So if it was eggs, <laughs> you're like, this must be morning. Uh, you know, and if it's burgers, or you're like, okay. So they could have really morning. messed with you and just just switched the menu on you. And you still, oh, you, yeah, would, you yeah. wouldn't know what, <laughs> what time of day it well, was. And so, and so we actually operated on something called Tennessee time. This was my captain's idea. So we would operate 12 hours opposite of the local times. So if it was six in the morning, we would be operating at six at night. So okay. if it was so three in the afternoon, local time would be three in the morning. And the reason was is that most of the most of the sailors are up during the normal day period. So from six to about six at night, six in the morning, six at night. And that's when we ran our drills. And so the captain wanted to be, if we were running a drill, we had to go to the periscope depth. He wanted it to be at nighttime. So we would change our clocks 12 hours uh, to be opposite of whatever the local time was. So it would mess with you. So we would have... You could get jet lag with ever, without ever going anywhere because right. suddenly it was, you know, daytime and you're like, well, you know, you go from, you, you have lunch and then you have lunch again, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, it would, it would just kind of mess with your brain a little bit, but yeah. And it, like a lot of times as an officer, 
I'd forget that it was dark outside, you know, because you're thinking, well, it's 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 eight in the morning. We're about to do a drill. I go up and it's dark. I'm like, oh, that's right. It's really it's really at night. <laughs> at night. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I guess you were all over the the globe in in the sub, or you just kind of in the vicinity of American. Yeah, we so we operated in the full body of the Atlantic Ocean. So we um, and <clears throat> my first few patrols, we operated uh, closer to, you know, to Russia in the North Atlantic. Um, and uh, we we had a we had an advanced missile on board. It was a Trident two D five missile, and it had the longest range and accuracy of any ballistic missile submarine. So eventually, they realized we could hit all of our targets. Uh, just basically anywhere in the Atlantic Ocean. So mm-hmm. so it made sense to just hide us in random places. And uh, so pretty much I've been in the entire Atlantic Ocean some at some point. So so not, <laughs> never over in the Pacific. You're always in the Atlantic? I was an Atlantic sailor, yeah. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Gotcha. Yeah. Now you're talking about the missiles. Um, and, you know, nowadays we're hearing more about the, those, the is it hypersonic missiles? Yeah. That are yeah. being uh, developed. Um, what, what's your take on those, the hypersonic missiles? Yeah, I don't know much about them other than it was supposedly, you know, we, they get on target so quick that we can't react. So it, it changes the whole balance of, uh, deterrence, but I don't know much about it. I'm not, I can't imagine we don't have that technology too. I just, so I'm, I'm, I don't know anything. <laughs> I have no inside knowledge, but I guarantee you we got something. I mean, it's think like, about all the I don't know billions. Anything, <laughs> think about all the billions that are given to these uh, you know, these defense contractors. I guarantee Absolutely. we got something. So oh, if I, we don't have something, we got something in the works. Yeah. yeah. Definitely probably something that will stop them or deter them. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I'm not I yeah. If I heard if I heard the Pentagon talking more about it, I'd be worried, but I don't I don't you don't hear them talking about it. So we must have something. So they only talk about stuff. <laughs> that they don't yeah. it's all misinformation you know right it's, right, it's all exactly. a big misinformation campaign and right, right. you know i'm not a yeah, conspiracy we, theorist at all yeah <laughs> yeah what makes you wonder right when you know like in the middle of covid right the the big the biggest news story that didn't exist was the fact that the government told us that ufos existed and everyone went <laughs> they're like we knew that <laughs> so uh but but it makes you makes you think like if they're admitting that UFOs are exist maybe they don't exist and it's it's a misdirection right so right you, because all the but, years they've been denying it and try to hide it and cover it up and then right. now all of a sudden they're like oh yeah they're real they're they're admitting it you know yeah, kind of deal yeah. but what so. speaking of I mean in this I usually ask this later on uh, but I'll <laughs> go ahead and ask it now since we were talking about it. Um, What's your take on UFOs and specifically aliens, UFOs, not, you know, unidentified flying objects? Cause you know, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, it's, I'm, I'm one of those guys that, that hope they exist just cause I think it's cool. But I, I was, I was of the age and you're probably similar, like, you know, close encounters came out and, you know, like star Wars, like close 70s, encounters, yeah, star Trek, big on, yeah, big on, on, uh, you know, alien, shows there was project blue book was a show that was on tv back then and and so yeah i i'm one of the guys that that hopes they're real uh but i i have no idea and you've never had any encounters at sea because a lot of them are talking about underwater you know now that you're talking about that's where the majority of them are are they live in the ocean 
Yeah, so interesting. I did a ask me anything anything on Reddit one time, and that I got more questions on UFOs than anything else. And uh, <laughs> I can tell you this: I was I was under the ocean for five years, and I did not see any UFOs. So, for take it for what it's worth, and 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 I'm not under any obligation to not tell you the truth. You're not any NDAs or anything like that. No, no, I never saw anything. And so. you, you've probably got some of the most sophisticated um, radar detection systems than than any other probably vehicle or branch of the military in your submarines. I would assume. Yeah, yeah, but again, we it would be hard. I mean, you know, we we use uh, we use passive sonar to listen into the ocean, um, so. If these things are silent, we wouldn't hear we wouldn't hear them. So yeah, um, and like you said, you I, don't have windows on subs, so you don't can't, have windows. You can't no. look out. So no, and 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 you gotta you gotta remember that everything in the military is geared towards you know the enemy we we're facing, not not a, a UFO. So yeah. we, we wouldn't necessarily have the right gear for identifying. And do you have cameras on the the outside? That you can so I think today that they they do operate a lot of remote cameras inside the uh, periscopes and things, but we we did not. And I'll tell you this kind of funny story. I was actually the ship's photographer for a couple of patrols, and we literally had a thirty-five millimeter camera. We would strap <laughs> on. We would strap on to the, the periscope, periscope to take pictures of enemy ships. That's and hilarious. So, yeah, yeah. So, so people All don't realize technology. That, yeah, I mean, 1994 was when I got out, and, and computers were just really getting going, and, and the internet was still like chat rooms and things. So it, it's it was really early yeah. when I was in MySpace kind of stuff. <laughs> I think it's pre MySpace. <laughs> pre MySpace, yeah. So um, you know, and that that also is an ask. I don't I don't know why they wouldn't put cameras all around it, everywhere, not just for research purposes is like a submarine being that depth, you know, going that much ocean. I mean, think of all the, the, I'm going to say wildlife, sea life that you could detect and find probably, you know, thousands yeah. of species we never even seen before. Yeah. So we, we, um, we hear them. So we, we have, um, we have hydrophones all over the submarine uh, that we can listen in. So, like, I, yeah. when I'd be on the midwatch, I'd have a couple speakers next to my operating area, and I would turn up the the hydrophones just to listen to the ocean sounds, and we hear all sorts of stuff. But um, it's so dark where we operate that a window really wouldn't be pretty pretty use useless. I know, but you got all this tech. You got thermal. You've got you know infrared. Nah, you can't use any of that under underwater. I don't know. Maybe today. I don't know. But back then it was, you know, but it was just That's dark. true back then. Yeah. It's it's dark and uh, it's cold and it's uh, not much going on. You know, I mean, it, the ocean is really big. Well, how do you know? You didn't have windows. You couldn't see. <laughs> how do you know? Right. You know, maybe there was but the would, world's would, largest would, yeah. whale down there or something that you. We, we would put up the periscope before we, we would we would go to periscope depth and we, we could look around the periscope. Um, and as you get closer to the surface, the light would start coming in. You could see yeah. things. occasionally you see fish swimming, like right behind the periscope, just sort of, you know, you'd be staring at a fish's eyeballs, but, uh, <laughs> you didn't, there wasn't much to see. It's a big ocean. It really is. It is. And that, that again, I don't, and maybe they do it nowadays. Maybe they have the cameras and they're recording this stuff. And I mean, who knows? I don't, I don't, somebody knows. 
I don't know. You don't I'm know. <laughs> I'm out. He's I'm like, out. I am out. <laughs> so, so what? What is the uh, weirdest encounter that you experienced? Um, and you said you the longest time that you were submerged was 120 days or 110. 110, yeah. Is that completely yeah. without coming up to the surface at all, or? Yeah, no, we would come up to periscope depth, but um, the, the, so surfacing the boat was typically at, at the at the end of patrol. We would take the boat. We would actually come out of the water, but you know, we 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 would come out for to pick up uh, riders, different people that we would be coming on the boat to evaluate us and what have you. So. No, that wasn't. Uh, so there was no periodic breaks where you would come up during that 110 days to get people exposure to sunlight or anything like no. that come out or no, no. So Most it was completely it, in that. Yeah, I would say sub. 90 90 days of completely under without come without surfacing. So wow. you were just periscope depth would be the closest you come to the surface. And what yeah. what do you do on a submarine for? Are you say six on? Do you got four shifts of six? Is that what it's? So it depends on how many people. What do you do when you're not working? (laughs) So you would run your department. Like I had, you know, I was in charge of different departments and uh, Mm -hmm. I'd run my department and I would, I would sleep and get ready for the next watch. And typically what you did is you'd have one watch, you stand watch, you would work. So you stand watch for six hours, you'd work for six hours and you would sleep for six hours and you go back on watch. So you would, you're pretty much like an 18 hour day essentially, but you would, yeah. your sleeping window was in one of those watch sections. And, you know, most times they were running drills during your sleep time. So you never really got much sleep. So and we during, were always sleep deprived. Yeah. yeah. And during your time, again, you know, technology's not, wasn't the way it is nowadays. You know, I can imagine that on subs now they've got, TVs and movies and video games and, you know, things like that to, to keep them occupied during, you know, the, the downtimes, uh, maybe exercise equipment. I'm, I'm sure you guys probably oh, yeah. had some sort of gym or oh, something yeah, we like had that. A, we had a gym. We had a gym in, uh, in missile compartment, lower level. We had uh, two treadmills. We had a couple of exercise bikes, a rowing machine, and then like a universal weight machine. Um, so we had that. And, um, so we had movies. In fact, uh, we had actually first run movies they'd put on the boat for us. So they were all VHS back then, but we had right. a big lot. Yeah. We had a big library of VHS films and a lot of, a lot of the guys would bring their own, you know, VHS tapes from home. Uh, I remember one guy was, oh, I from bet they Jewel. did. <laughs> yeah. One, <laughs> That's a whole nother story. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, one guy from Georgia that liked the Andy Griffiths show. So he, oh my gosh. he was in the wardroom. Every time he was in the wardroom, and I'm from the north. I never saw that show. And I, I didn't uh, I didn't quite relate. But uh, yeah, we would get Andy Griffiths. <laughs> How could you uh, not re- I mean, one of the greatest leaders of all time, Andy Griffiths. <laughs> well, I got to, I, I, I appreciate it now. But back then, you know, I thought, you know, what is this country bump? I learned a lot country? of life lessons from, <laughs> from watching – Andy Griffith, uh, Barney Five, yeah, Little Opie, yep. Little yep. Opie, and um, oh, what was his uh, his aunt? Uh, B. Aunt B. Aunt yeah. B. Aunt yeah. B. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, but we so you'd get all that kind of stuff, and you you mentioned the other thing of it was kind of funny is the, uh, you know, pornography was interesting. Um, <laughs> I didn't mention so, that. <laughs> some people would bring those and uh, like, it is funny that the chief's quarters now chiefs are the senior enlisted um, uh, sailors on the boat. So they're, they've come up through the ranks and so they're still below officers, but they're, they're above most of the sailors and they had their own quarters. 
And so as an officer, you had to go in the chief's quarters a lot to talk to your chief because they're typically your second in command of your mm. division. And uh, yeah, I've been many times you go into the chief's quarters and there's, you know, porn stuff going on, on the TV <laughs> and you're like, just every day. Why, why are you doing that? You should just forget about that for three months. Cause it's, <laughs> or six months. I mean, it's human nature. How, how do you right. forget about that? And I guess at the time when, when you were saying there were no women allowed. Right. Right. Is that still the policy nowadays? No, no. They have uh, women on board the uh, SSBNs and SSGNs. Now the bigger, the bigger submarines. Okay. And that, that, yeah. that's like a uh, mixed men, women, or is that all women crew or. No, no, it's a mix. It's okay. a mix. Yeah. What do they call that? Co-ed. Co-ed. There you go. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. it's been a while. <laughs> yeah. I had one of the first female um, submarine officers on my on my uh, podcast. And it was interesting because I wanted to talk to her about what her experience was like compared to my experience. I'll bet. And I would say this is that she, she, she had the same experience I did. It's still all the frustrations, the, the challenges. She had it just like I did. Um, but, but, but even then it's, it was like it, more, more difficult for her is that she was one of the first women on a submarine. So like the, every, everyone had been like warned before she got here, how to act around women. So everyone was just afraid. So she said she would come down, a, she'd come, come down a hallway and everybody would just move out of her way and like, you know, right. stare straight ahead. And she's like, look, I'm, I'm human. You can look at me. You can talk to me. Right. You know, yeah. So well, she had, everyone was just afraid, you know? In that, yeah, in that environment, and you know, her kind of being a trailblazer, you know, yeah, yeah, it takes some adjustment. But she, but she was, you know, from all intents and purposes, she she was a very competent uh, officer, and I was I was you know glad glad to talk to her. Just it was good to know that the standards weren't lowered. That it's difficult to do that job, mm-hmm. and the women that are on board are doing that job, doing it well, from what I can tell. Yeah, and what was your rank? I was lieutenant when I got out. Lieutenant, Lieutenant Dan. <laughs> yeah, I was Lieutenant John. Lieutenant yeah. John. <laughs> yeah. So um, I've got lots of other submarine questions. I, you know, I could go on for hours asking you about about submarines. But so you five years on the submarine. Um, I mean, you got to be very disciplined in that environment, um, structured. Yeah, I would assume that that's probably played a big role in you developing the leadership skills that you have today. Um, moving on from that, you, you said when you got out of the Navy, you went into corporate America and you've run, was it 20 different? Uh, yeah. Eight different manufacturing eight. businesses. Or yeah, 20. Eight, <laughs> well, I was 20, 22 years. I ran eight different manufacturing businesses during that time. So, okay. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. So I got, I got my f- fill of, um, corporate life, what it's like to work for three, I work for three different global companies. So, uh, that meant a lot of global travel. It meant, um, you know, uh, you know, operating these big, big manufacturing plants. And uh, yeah, but it also meant. Uh, I would assume you've got you know, an engineering all, background. Is that what you, your course of study? A, yeah, I have a mechanical engineering degree. My undergrad is in. So yeah. Gotcha. And talk yeah. about some of the the corporate companies that you ran during those twenty years. Maybe some of the more memorable ones. Yeah, I mean, my first plant was uh, we we were a manufacturing plant in um, in Florence, South Carolina, making circuit breakers that were you know fifteen thousand volt circuit breakers, very large circuit breakers, and uh, that was a lot of fun because it was the first time that I had my own manufacturing business. It was sort of like being captain of your own ship because we were remote, like 
there was no other corporate businesses around. So mm. I was like the, like the, uh, you know, the biggest guy in the company, you know, in, in that state essentially. So, you know, there was no one around locally. So it was kind of fun to be remote and have your own business, but, um, but there was a lot of challenges with that. So, because I was so new, I was 32 years old when I got my first manufacturing plant. I didn't really oh, know wow. much about manufacturing. So, but I, you know, that crew was the crew that worked there was, they were just a great group of people and they, um, they embraced this, you know, I was the youngest manager in that plant's history. So they, they, they embraced this young, you know, young looking and young, uh, manager that came in and, and did his best. And, uh, I think, it was, it was there where I really learned the power of people because I think when I first went into the role, I thought, well, I had to have all the answers. I was the boss. I've been promoted. Right. So I got to have all the answers. I got to, I got to dictate things from the corner office. You go here, you go there, you do this. But what I realized is that you know, it didn't take me too long to realize that all the knowledge for, you know, running this business resided in the minds of the experienced employees. And mm. so I learned through that first role in corporate that, if I tap into all this, you know, wisdom that we had in that building, we were going to be a much better operation. So, right. so I was, you know, for me, it was about breaking down the walls between hourly and salaried employees and, and building, you know, building a, a team and, and getting us focused on one goal. And uh, almost like uh, back in the submarine days, we bring everybody together mm-hmm. and uh, operating towards a single mission. And uh, I had, that was a lot of fun. And it was, it was a small operation, 140 people. So you could really, you know, you knew everybody's name, you knew about their lives. And, and so I really enjoyed being out on the shop floor, getting to know people. That was, that's my, you know, still even to this day is probably the funnest job I ever had in corporate was running a small plant like that. Was this in America, this, this plant? Cause you said you've been all over the world. Yeah, it's been, it was in Florence, South Carolina. Okay. Yeah. Kind of well, to, to me, they spoke another language because I was from New England. I didn't quite <laughs> understand what they were talking well, about. Well, you don't have a New England accent. You know, that's kind of why. No, I'm... I do not. I do not. I've lost it over the years. Um, yeah. So I, I go uh, I go hunting in uh, New Hampshire every year, and uh, I am I can barely understand the people from my home state. Do you start, when you go back home, do you start picking up that that, that dialect again? I don't think so. No, I don't. You never noticed it? No, my my father and brother and the guys I hunt with are, are very heavy New England accents, and I just have kept mine. And they they always say hey, you sound funny. I'm like I, I don't sound funny. I sound like the folk the folks on the national news. You sound funny. <laughs> <laughs> You're just stealth. That's what you've you've right. adapted and blended in. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't know what happened to it. Yeah. Yeah, but we we laugh about it because it's just the the accent's so heavy up there. Well, I noticed uh, when I was in corporate. Um, and when I worked, well, not so much when I worked for the government because I worked for the the state government here in Tennessee. So, but I noticed when I went corporate, I was losing my southern accent. Mm. Um, just because I think <clears throat> southern accents, people don't take you as serious or think you're as you know intelligent. You know, they they associate it with with hillbilly redneck, you know, kind of kind of ways and. Um, anywhere I would go, people go, you know, where are you from? I'm from Tennessee. They're like, we don't have an accent. I was like, mm, okay, maybe, maybe I don't. But when I got out of that and started doing my, it, it came back and uh, you can probably hear it now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know where, where accents go, but, um, I don't have as it's much. It's an, it's a, it's a, I think it's just a, a human adaptive process that we, we go through. We try to fit in, we try to blend in. 
with our, you know, our surrounding environment. I think it's more of a survival type instinct. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. And the other thing I would say, this is that um, one of the things I noticed about myself just over the years is I, I tend to be a little empathetic. Like I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm really good at sales, for example, because I, I really do like empathize with my customers and the challenges that they have. I empathize with my employees and the, the frustrations they have. So I think, I think part of being a good leader is having that ability to sense what the emotions are of the, you know, the person across the table from you. And I think that's something that's been a little bit of a, you know, a superpower that I have is having the ability to, to, and I think probably as a result of that, I probably morph into my language probably morphs to fit the uh, situation like yeah. that too. I would, I would imagine. Yeah. But you can't really, you can't really be empathetic towards someone unless you've actually experienced it yourself. So you know, going through your years of experience, you know, that's things that you've experienced and, you know, you're, you're able to, you know, bring a, um, uh, what the word I'm looking for, but a real, you know, come across as real and, you know, with your empathy and I'm sure they sense that and it's like, oh, he, you know, he's been through this before. He understands exactly what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. I think, I think being, you know, growing up blue collar was a big part of that. So I, I related more to the people on the shop floor than I did the people in the office. Right. I, 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 I related well to, you know, the guy that was, you know, had the manufacturing job that, uh, you know, was trying to pay his bills and, and um, trying to take care of his family. And I just sort of I related more to that because that's where I grew up in. And I did not grow up in a place where um, there was a lot of money and there was a lot of, um, you know, and we were, fan, you know, resources. Fancy. Yeah. And resource. I mean, like I, we didn't dress up. We, you know, it's. It's like even today, right? As an entrepreneur, I wear T-shirts and jeans and boots, and 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 that's what I wear. That's my uniform, and and I have a closet full of corporate clothing I'd probably never wear again. Oh my gosh! Yeah, throw it away. all uh, my suits yeah. and everything are. Yeah, you know, they yeah. just got dust all over them, you know. So right, my right. dress so shoes. I, oh my god, I haven't even looked at my dress shoes in years. So I don't. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. no telling what kind of con- condition they probably got mold on them by now. Uh, but I think I think that's uh, you know having having had that experience and being coming up blue collar I think um, you know it's funny because a lot of my peers didn't understand how I could relate well to the folks in the shop floor uh, because a lot of them you know they they their whole lives were about getting into management and you know getting the degrees and getting the climbing the ladder yeah yeah climbing the ladder I found myself sort of. Um, my wife would say uh, I, I was pulled kicking and screaming up the corporate ladder is what uh, she would say. So I ended up getting a lot of responsibility and multiple plants and all this sort of things, but it was never anything I was applying for. It just sort of kept getting more and more responsibility. So. Yeah. And you know, it, it seems, but so what I'm trying to say is that I noticed that a lot of former military people tend to be higher up in, you know, the, I guess the more successful companies, mm-hmm. uh, there seem to have more military type, uh, people that are leading and guiding those, um, those companies. Would you say that the military, um, instills that because you, you hit on something a minute ago where you were talking about, you know, taking a small group of people and focus, focusing them on a single mission, you know, to get it accomplished. Um, yeah. Talk, talk about yeah. the military and how maybe that played a part in your development. Yeah. So, so the military leadership was a big, it, it was considered a skill and it was a, something that you trained and you learned and were taught. 
you couldn't be promoted until you, into a higher level of leadership until you served as a lower level of leadership. So you were you grew as a leader from the from the ground up, essentially. Uh, and leadership training was a big part of everything we did. Even even when I was in ROTC before I got my commission, we took leadership classes. And so leadership was taught. It was so one of the things I noticed in my corporate career is that we treat leadership as sort of like a an extra, like like you're a really good um, you're a really good uh, uh, engineer. So we're going to make you the engineering manager. So you're like, okay, well now I've got the title of manager, and I have no skill sets. I have no none of this. I've got great engineering skills. Right. I don't have any leadership. I don't know skills. what managing means. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. we we don't we we look at leadership skills as like, oh, you'll figure it out, right? But leadership is a whole nother. It, it's its own set of skills, and you have to learn them. You have to practice them, and typically it's best done. And the military did a really good job under a, uh, a mentor-mentee relationship where you had a senior leader helping a junior leader develop his or her skills, right? So that's why military leaders are so good when they get out because they actually learned leadership. It, it is something they learned. Yes, you know, like a SEAL was good at shooting and explosives and languages and all that, but he also learned leadership. And we also learned leadership. We were great at weapons. I was great at nuclear power and all that stuff, but I also learned leadership. It was, it was a whole skill set Yeah, and we don't look at it like a skill set. And that's where the biggest challenge is. How would that's you, why, yeah. No, I was going to ask, how would you define leadership? What is leadership? Yeah. It's motivating a group of people to get something done. It's, it's that simple. It's, it's, and it's three things. It's, it's, it's motivating, right? So you have to, you have to know your people and it's people. So they get the job done and it's your goal. What, what are you trying to accomplish? There's three things. And we make leadership to be more complicated than it, than it needs to be, but it's those three things, right? And so mm. we say, well, you need to be a servant leader. Well, that's, that part of that is motivation. How do you motivate? How do you support? How, but it's all about those three things. And it's not what leadership is not is doing emails. It's not about a to-do list. It's not about uh, conference calls. It's not about um, being busy. It's about meeting people to get something done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's not about meetings. And so we confuse that and we think that, well, if I get all my emails answered, then I'm a good leader. You're not. You're a good doer. Uh, but you, you maybe you're a good manager, but you're not a good leader. So I think uh, we confuse a lot of things. We, people people get management titles, and they think that they're a leader, and they're not. It, it it takes a special type of skills to be able to motivate a group of people to get difficult things done. So it's it's very difficult to do, but it's it's like chess, right? You can learn to play the game in in, in a mm. day, but it takes a lifetime to master. I think leadership is a lot like that. Yeah. I just watched a documentary on uh, chess uh, the other no. day. I used to play it a lot growing up. I haven't haven't played it in years, but I w always wanted to to know that castle move when you castle oh, yeah. your king. Because yeah. I would, yeah. you know, people would do that, and I'm like, I don't understand that move. So I watched this documentary. <laughs> and I learned how to do it now. Finally, after you know 30 years of, <laughs> I, love it. I was like, oh, that's how you do it. And then I also learned about the pawn uh, that you can. Like if if you haven't moved your pawn yet and somebody passes your pawn or whatever, you know how the pawn takes them diagonally. Yeah. That yeah. you can. There's a move I can't remember what it's called, but you can take somebody different than the diagonal move. It was. Hmm. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not, but anyway, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a chess expert, but I do know it's. I'm uh, not either. 
leadership is difficult like like chess is difficult to, no absolutely to absolutely yeah, yeah so let's talk about your your books how did you get into authoring writing books what uh, one day you just woke up hey i'll write a book yeah that's exactly what it was no it wasn't. <laughs> no no you know it's funny um uh, you know i as i mentioned i did my time in the military then did 22 years in corporate, I noticed that my businesses always did better than my peers, right? I always, uh, my, my businesses performed very high levels. We met, we met our, our um, always met our targets. We, we grew to record levels and, and a lot of my peers were jealous of that. They were, you know, they were like, oh, they used to call me the golden child. Well, Rennie's the golden child. Everything he touches turns to gold. And I'm like, I am not a freaking golden child. Like I am no expert in any of this stuff. But what are, one of the things I did is I learned about the power of people and how, you know, people properly motivated and properly treated. Uh, number one, treating people with respect is like my number one rule. But you get more out of them. You get more things done. And, and especially when you share what the mission is and you get everybody on board that mission. And so it's like these simple things that I had done that, that got that yielded all these results. And I tried to talk to my peers like, well, this is what I did. It's not that hard, but here's how you can do it. But I think people thought there was some sort of special, something special I was doing. And it's not yeah. special at all. It's very basic. You had this magic but, formula. No, I did not. And uh, but as I, you know, as I'm older now, you know, in my 50s, I'm like, I've got to tell people I want to teach the next generation about about, you know, some of these things that I've learned over the years. And so I really felt strongly about writing it down and getting in, in the hands of people. And I wrote my first book, I guess, three year, 2019, three years ago now. Um, okay. And uh, and it really was just a, a, a really good guide, basic guide for like good leadership principles. It's called I Have the Watch. And that's that was the first book I wrote. There it and, is. Um, okay. And that uh, that one, it's, it's got ex extremely, it's extremely popular. It's um, I I've sold this book. I've been paying my mortgage with the sales of this nice. book. It's nuts. Nice. So um, it, the book really took off, and uh, it's crazy, and um, it's been all over the world. It's uh, you know, uh, I had a call from you know just just different different calls I've had. One of it was the uh, FBI headquarters in Washington D.C. is that they have a leadership really? training. Uh, and they they act and they have a leadership library and the, the lady called me up and said that she wanted to let me know that my book is in that their leadership library and the FBI. Um, I had the executive officer, the current executive officer on the USS Tennessee call and asked me to use if I could use he could use my book to train uh, his leaders, current leaders on the Tennessee, the boat I served on, you know, a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. How many years it is. But um, and how so awesome really would that be off. if they invited you to come and? Oh and shoot! Do I would love that. I would love to just do one more run on a on a boat. I mean, just to get down there and submerge and and uh, yeah, you don't you don't know how much guys like me miss those days. Uh, it was tough, but we we certainly miss those days of being deployed and yeah. and uh, being part of a crew. But yeah, so the first book. I wrote and uh, it took off and went crazy. And, um, and so, yeah, so I really got the bug. Um, and, um, so three years really, ago you did this, that was your first, you wrote, I have the watch. Yeah. Three years ago. And, um, to be honest with you, uh, I had another book in mind and I had hired a, a writing coach to help me through the process. And one of the first things he had said to me is like, he said, don't write the big book first, write a smaller book. And I was like, well, I don't understand. I don't have a smaller book in my head. He's <laughs> like, you've been, you've been writing articles for, for 15 years. Like you have so much content out there. So we took a lot of my content from uh, things I've written over the past 10 years and put it into this first book. I have the watch, mm -hmm. 
But then the second book was the book I really wanted to, to write. And that's that's called All in the Same Boat. And that's that's really my of all the books I've written, this is this is my favorite. It, it's a uh, it's really the book I wanted to tell the story. And in this book is kind of fun because it's um, it's uh, sort of eight major lessons I learned in the military, how, how I learned them in the military. So you're going to have lots and lots of stories from the boat. So if you want to know what it was like to be on board a deployed submarine at sea in the middle of the Cold War, you're going to get those stories. Nice. And then I actually tell the corporate stories, the, the business stories, how I took those ideas and I and I use them in running successful businesses uh, in corporate and my own manufacturing business that I started six years ago. So this is really the book I wanted to write. And uh, and so this is really um, this this was this was a labor of love. This is the fairly big book. You know, it's what, 300 some odd pages. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was really the book I wanted to tell. Uh, this do you have was- these on audio also? Yeah, yeah. So these two are both on audio books. Uh, the the okay. fourth book I wrote is not, and there's a reason for it. But the, uh, the fourth, but, uh, you skipped one. Oh, uh, sorry, the third. So a third is. Uh, <laughs> You're working yeah, on a third. fourth, apparently. That was a Freudian slip, <laughs> wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so this book, like I said, this was this this is my first book, and it became wildly popular. It's fairly small, easy to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can read it in probably three hours. But one of the things people who read this book kept saying is like, this is like a daily, some a daily reader. You could read this every morning and it would give you some clues to become a better leader. And I never really thought of it. I didn't write it that way. But it made gave me the idea for my for my latest book that just came out this year. It's called You Have the Watch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and really what that is, is um it's a guided journal. So it's actually a journal that'll that that will take you through 50 leadership themes. It's designed to be on your desk for a year. And so every week you tackle a different different theme. It's like a calendar. And actually, calendar. Yeah, and you read, and and there's a lot of like reflecting and writing. So inside the book, you know, you're you're, you're I don't know how much you can see it, but you you're oh, reading. Oh, let me and switch my screen. Hold on, I'm I'm sharing my okay. screen. All right, there we go. But yeah, so you can see you're 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 reflecting on a particular subject, yeah. and then you're uh, and you're you're you usually have a task. It's kind of hyper focused. Yeah, and so it's more of a it's it's more of a, a journal than it is more of a book, but it's designed for for you to be you know to go through it over an entire year. Yeah. So it's you know one of the things we see with leadership training is that somebody might go to like like an hour training and then like oh you're now you're a leader or you watch a video or you watch a TED talk or whatever, but it's a one time event or you read a book, it's a one time event. Yeah. This is meant to be a, a year long event. Constant. Yeah, we need something like that. So constant so reinforcement this, kind of deal. Yeah. So this book was written basically on the feedback from my customers or my readers from the first book. So these two, these two are kind of related. I have the watch and you are you have the watch are kind of related. And then all in the same boat is more a standalone book, essentially. Gotcha. Yeah. I like your logo that you got going there. Yeah, yeah. That's uh that's on my podcast too. It's this little submarine thing. Yeah, it's yeah. the what what is that part of the submarine called? Yeah, your conning tower. The yeah. conning tower. Yeah. I thought it was a cross at first. No. Looks like one, though. Could be. Yeah, it kind of looks like a cross there. So. If it offends you, it is. It doesn't offend <laughs> me. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That was, not I'm at sure all. You don't have, you know, I'm sure you have people that listen to this are not offended by a cross. <laughs> no, no, no. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, like I said, I mean, the, the 2A community is a welcoming community. All walks of life, religions. Absolutely or non-religion, you know, whatever your choice may be. Um, that's why I try to keep religion and politics. I don't talk a lot of those on the, the show. I, 
Again, I like to keep it positive, you know, because those are Absolutely. two of the biggest, you know, controversial topics that lead to divisiveness and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. Chaos. Same thing with our show, too. We're, we really want to talk about leadership, and and uh, I don't really care where you came from. You can be a good leader, and and so that's what we focus on, too. Same thing. We don't get into politics too much, although, I you know, I, I did talk to a lot of um, – you know, folks that served in Afghanistan right after the withdrawal and just kind of just not to get political, but I wanted to get their feeling. Yeah. And it's not really political again, you know, when you talk about something like that and, you know, speaking of what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, (laughs) we were there for a long time. You think we could figure out a plan to exit, you know, and, and, and why didn't we use a major air base? Why did we do what we did? How we came, how we pulled out of there? There's just so many questions that, um, but why do you think they did what they did? Do you think it was just knee jerk, um, bad advice, and they're just like, let's just pull it and go and leave everything? And I think that th- they thought abandon all those people. I think they thought it would go better than it did. I really thought you really you really go. think they did. It was hope. Hope was their strategy. They they really hoped it would go well, and it was a disaster. And the thing is, what gets me hmm. from a leadership standpoint is no one was held, no one was held accountable for that, and that's that I struggle with. That mm-hmm. we, that nobody, uh, and it wasn't the, the the soldiers on the ground, the Marines on the ground. Oh no, no, no! It was the people making the decisions, and those people are still in power, and that bothers me. It's you know, the, the only guy that was taken out was that uh, the one lieutenant colonel who just said he said that same thing. Marine Corps lieutenant colonel said, "Hey, how come no one's being held accountable?" And he lost his job. Yeah, they held him accountable. <laughs> yeah. Probably the only one that was pushing, you know, not to do what they did, and they they get rid of him. Yeah, so I think part of leadership is accountability. When you run a ship aground, when you run a submarine aground, you lose your job as a mm-hmm. captain of a submarine. If it touches anything other than liquid, you lose your job. And, I think and that's that, the way it is. And again, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to talk politics, but again, I think that's the problem with uh, our leadership this day is that there's no accountability whatsoever. And we have to be more um, stringent, more... Um, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for to 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 f- push accountability on these leaders. Yeah, absolutely. That that that's very much bothersome. Um, you know, I mean, we we had the border situation where they were talking about the border guards were whipping, you know, the the, the migrants. And, oh my gosh, yeah. You know, and those guys got put on. They got suspended. The 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 border guards, and they were doing their job, and they and it was just something that was blown out. And even the way blown out of proportion, yeah. Yeah. So, and, but again, who was held accountable? Where, where was the forgiveness? Where were these guys reinstated uh, with full pay? Uh, no, but, and that's, that's what's bothersome is that um, we throw people under the bus in, in, in too much in politics. Uh, and that's poor leadership. If you, if you're going to lead a business and you're always constantly throwing your people under the bus, you're, you're not a leader. You're, no. you're, you're, and that's the environment that these current, yeah. um, you, and they're not leaders, you know. Our politicians are not leaders; they no. they don't they don't lead us. They're, and that's a misconception, you know. That's going to get into our talking lead facts to fight the myths. Now it's time for the talking lead facts to fight the myths. Yeah, <laughs> this is is politicians are not leaders. They are not elected to be leaders. They are elected to carry out our our wishes, our demands, the populace, and you know what we see fit and how we would like our country, our states, our counties, our cities run. 
And I think that's that's where a lot of people, and they're afraid to hold these people accountable because they think they are leaders and they think they're going to get some sort of reprimand if they speak up or out against them. You know, that's a dictatorship, and we're not in a dictatorship in this country. Not yet, anyway. But I think that's, you know, they're they're trying to shape it into that to where you're subservient to these politicians and we're not. Yeah, yeah. They work for us, and I think it's, we, we supposed to. miss that. They're supposed to. So no, enough politics. We'll get out of the politics realm. And um, again, go to John's website. It's J-O-N-S-R-E-N-N-I-E.com. And that's where you can check out his books. You can get them uh, audio, obviously. Get the audio versions of those too. Uh, and you Freudian slipped. Are you working on a fourth? No. Uh, you are too. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I, I've got are. a lot of different ideas. Um, but, uh, I think probably I'll write a little bit about what it's like to start a business, uh, being a leader in a, in, in a startup company. Uh-huh. Uh, there's, there's something to be said there. Uh, there's a whole nother leadership, um, skill set to lead a business from the ground up, sure. uh, which I've been doing for six years. So there's something to be said there. There may be a book there. So, but I told my wife, I said, well, it has to be, it has to have a good ending. Otherwise, you can't write a book on it, right? So I don't know. <laughs> so we're still building There's our business. So. Some books that don't have good endings, but <laughs> right, that's right. So on our facts to fight the myth, you know, we talked about this prior too. Do you have a a fact to fight the myth? Maybe that's related to the the submarine life, the corporate life. Maybe concealed well, carry, think, hunting. What what is it? What do you got? One of, one of the things I noticed, like coming into the civilian world as being former military, is that there. Everyone sort of the myth of a submarine or sorry, the myth of a military leader is that they're all command and control, that that I'm going to come in. I'm going to dictate how things are be done. And uh, the facts are, especially uh, on a submarine, is that there is no real hierarchy on a submarine. Yes, we had ranks, but we all lived in the same metal tube. We we ate the same food. We um, we slept in the same size racks. We had there was no special smelled the same stinky air. Absolutely. You know, when, when, when the, um, you know, when we couldn't make fresh water, we didn't have showers when we didn't have, when the galley was secured for maintenance or drills, we ate, we all ate cold cuts. Uh, so we suffered together. We, uh, and so there's less of the separation between officers and enlisted in, in the, in the submarine community more than anything. And so we, we were, we were used to operating, uh, together, you know, in tight spaces, uh, working as a team to get things done. So, uh, yeah, command and control was a lot is not what I'm about. It's about working with people to get things done. So I think that was a big myth. I I never even thought about when, but when I came into to an organization, I saw his former military. They're like, oh great, here here comes this guy. You right. know? Here comes He's the whips and what, chains. What to do? Yeah, <laughs> but it's not true at all. So in fact, even if you think about it, uh, you know, Simon Sinek wrote the book Leaders Eat Last. Well, that's something the military leaders have always done that they put their people in front in front of in front of themselves. Uh, it happens in the Marine Corps. It happens in the Army. It happens, happens across in all military branches. So, yeah. So th- there's a myth that uh, military leaders are a certain way, but it's completely false. Yeah, I like that. That's a good one. Yeah. So I got a I got another question about the submarine. Um, and yeah. then and then I want to go to our listener questions. Okay. Um, we'll, we'll field some of those. Um, what is the I guess the scariest or most disturbing time that you had while you're on the submarine? Mm. 
So my, I wrote about it in uh, in my All in the Same Boat. It's chapter eight. Um, it's uh, it was it's the chapter eight is called Tough Times. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, I was in uh, I was in the North Atlantic for a, a winter storm that lasted nearly two weeks. Uh, and it was brutal. It was my first patrol, my first deployment, uh, first time being away from home. And uh, we were taking rolls uh, close to 45 degree rolls each way. Uh, submerged below the surface of the of the ocean. Oh wow! It was it was You're dreadful. Like... Yeah, it was it was dreadful. I remember thinking, "There's just no way I can make a career out of this. This this is awful." But even the most senior um, sailors were 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 seasick. It was it was miserable uh, for like I said for almost two weeks oh, wow. uh, in the North Atlantic. And um, so yeah, it um, you know the the we would, um, when we come to periscope depth, the, uh, the, the, the back of a submarine, of a Trident submarine or an Ohio class is flat. And so you get the surface effect where, where the waves will, will pull the boat. And so what's called broaching. Broaching uh-huh. means the whole boat comes out of the water. Uh, and there was so much wave action that we kept broaching the, 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 the boat and the propeller was coming out of the water. And the, and it was, it, it was, it was a, it was a, it was scary <laughs> for me. It's funny because our captain didn't seem bothered at all. I mean, wasn't his first rodeo, probably, huh? No, it wasn't his first rodeo. It was my first rodeo. It was yours. <laughs> so you thought it was the end of times at, at, during that storm. Oh, huh? we would sit down to have a meal, and our and you know the the, the the plates, everything was just going down, up and down the table, and just it was just brutal. It was well, brutal. That's a question yeah. too: is how do you how do the plates stay on the table? Is there some sort of a special plate that you guys have, or something you attach no. them like Velcro? You hold, <laughs> you hold on to it. You just hold on <laughs> so, to it and hope you don't spill it, huh? Yeah. So we did have a place for our coffee cups, uh, and that's kind of a funny thing. Uh, submarines they have these well, almost like cup holders all over the submarine. They're called zarfs, and that's the name. Zarf. That's what they're called. Okay. And that's just what we called them. That's where you put your coffee cup in. Do so. you know where that term came from? I don't know. It probably has some interesting origin story, but uh, there was a lot of weird little up. names. Uh, like anytime you find a little hole where you're, you're, like, they could store stuff or put stuff, that was called a puka. a puka. And I think that's actually a Hawaiian term, but uh, but I don't know where a zarf came from at all. But uh, we had a lot of weird, um, yeah. Names for things. things. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. All right, let's go to uh, some listener questions here. And okay. while while I'm looking these up, is there is there something that maybe we were talking about that you wanted to uh, expand upon? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's just I would say this is that being on a submarine is a lot like being on a spaceship. You know, uh, you know, like the guys that go out in the the space station, they mm-hmm. live for six months. It's it's very similar to that because what's outside the hull can kill you. What's outside the spacecraft can kill you. Right. So. Your your enemy is two things. One is for us, it was the Soviet Union, but it was also uh, the, the the crushing uh, pressure of the seawater that wanted to get inside the people tank, right? So yeah. so we had a common enemy uh, on the uh, on inside that boat was to keep the seawater out of the boat. Did you ever have any enemy encounters? Yeah. So in my in the beginning, when the Soviets were very active, yeah, we would have a lot of uh, mostly surface ships would be sort of harassing us trying to get uh, photos of us and trying to listen to our engines and things like that yeah but no like depth charges or anything like that you never had like an attack on you no 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 it was uh it was a cold war for a reason it wasn't a hot war so we didn't uh did you ever get to fire the uh, torpedoes 
Yes, fire torpedoes a lot. We used to go down every uh, every other patrol. We'd go down to uh, the Caribbean, down to Autech uh, testing range, and we fire torpedoes. And then I fired four missiles as well, too. I got a chance ah. to fire four Trident missiles uh, during different testing that we did. So, uh, but yeah, I got a chance do to fire just, four. Do you have like targets on a land somewhere that you, or you got boats uh, out in on the- On the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, yes. <laughs> on the other side of the Atlantic, yeah. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Yeah. Let's see. Um, we're going to Instagram here, and I'll take the first one here. Arms of Cascadia. How do you deal with the lack of daylight while underwater? I imagine it messes with sailors. Sicardian rhythm? Pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah, so it does. It really does mess with you. Um, like I said, not knowing night and day was – you sort of got used to it after a while, but it's certainly um, – yeah, you didn't know if you were coming or going. If you didn't know, you know until you, unless you went to periscope depth and looked through the periscope, you wouldn't know if it was daylight or night. So yeah, that did mess with us. So you know what do they call that? That sad, you know, seasonal affective disorder. People get that in the winter time when they don't get sunlight. I yeah, think you get had, depressed. I think we had that uh, on the submarine, to be honest. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're pretty pale dudes. So. <laughs> Uh, you answered most of this one. Brett Bedal says, what was your role? And we talked about that. Also yeah. talk about the weirdest systems malfunction you had to deal with underway or underwater. Well, you know, I was the, I was the machinery division officer for a while. And uh, that meant I had the two evaporator units. That's where we made our fresh water. And so they were notorious, uh, for going down. They, they were very difficult, um, pieces of equipment to keep maintained. And so, um, so it's kind of funny uh, because whenever we lose fresh water, the first thing we do is secure the showers. But I, after a while, I got a little bit, I figured this out. So what I would do is whenever they go down, I'd go take a shower myself I, before I told the captain, go take a nice hot shower. And then I would get my uniform back on and I go tell the captain. I said, well, captain, both of the uh, rapiders are down. Uh, we have to secure showers. He's like, all right, so let's secure the showers. But I always got my shower in first before I did that. <laughs> He's like, just one minute. Well, I got something to well, do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is a good one here. Um, here we go. Bailey Muller 80. What sorts of firearms are kept on a submarine? What do you see as the next innovation in submarine warfare or technology? Well, I think I think the question, uh, a couple of things. One is uh, how do you how do we how do we resupply um, submarines at sea? With, with using potentially using drones and how, how can we use drones both uh, ah. in, in the air and also underwater to support the mission? Yeah. So how do we use underwater drones and uh, uh, flying drones to support the missions that we have? So can you imagine if you went to periscope depth and you also launched a uh, an aerial drone which could see you know yeah. long distance uh, to see what was going on out there uh, that would interface with the submarine and you get a better you know uh, eye in the sky essentially yeah. uh, for what's going on so yeah I can see the use of um, unmanned drones both underwater and in the air to support um, submarine operations yeah I can't imagine they're not doing that yeah maybe they do already I don't know uh, I I <laughs> I, would, I mean, I would just, that would be just like one of those, duh, like, of course they are. If they yeah. aren't, then. <laughs> um, what sorts of firearms are kept on a submarine? So that's kind of an interesting question. So um, we, uh, we had 1911s for handguns. So uh, we had um, 
we had shotguns, pump shotguns, uh, and then we had uh, M14s. We had okay. M14 rifles. So we had only three types of weapons. Now, now I know they've got M60s that they mount on the sail for when you're in port and what have you. But that's back in the day we had M14s, shotguns, and uh, and 45s. That's all we. And I carry. I used to have to carry a 45 whenever we were doing any work with the weapons. So when we were in port and we were doing warhead changes and stuff, I carried a 45 uh, during that time because there are certain points where deadly force was authorized if you got beyond certain areas. So we had to defend that. So Yeah. Were there any instances on any of your deployments um, to where crew-wise you had to break out a firearm? Yeah, I tell a story in the book where um, – <clears throat> The, uh, the the base duty officer failed to inform me. I was a ship's duty officer at night. They were doing a um, a mock battle on uh, on on one of the um, buildings on the waterfront. Uh, so they had Marines doing a fake invasion, if, if you will, or protection uh, operation. And um, so I was the ship's duty officer. And then uh, I hear my uh, topside watch calls over the one MC, which is the announcement in the whole boat, saying. Um, uh, you know, repel borders, which means we've got people trying to break in. Uh, and I hear, I hear automatic gunfire coming over the one MC. And so we, at that point, locked and loaded, prepared to pucker factor went up. <laughs> yeah, we secured the ship. And I, I was like, this is not a drill because I mean, I was not informed of anything happening on base. And, uh, I got on the, um, got on the periscope and look, I could see, you know, troops running towards the, um, the, uh, covered dry dock area. And um, I didn't really know what was going on until until I noticed uh, I had trained with the Marines. And so uh, I happened to catch that the all the M16s they were carrying had the uh, blank fire adapter on the end of it. Yeah. As soon as I saw that, I knew it was a drill and that they were doing something, but it wasn't. So we secured quickly from the drill, but we had locked and loaded. We were ready to defend the boat. We didn't know what was going on. But uh, yeah, that, so that was a miscommunication. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that could I have been tragic. I called up as Lieutenant Commander, which he outranked me on the base duty officer, and I chewed him out. And then I broke the secured phone, the Stu 3 phone. I, I smashed it into a lot of pieces because I was really pissed off that, um, yeah, we had loaded weapons. Uh, and, yeah. You were ready yeah, to use the them. Captain, yeah. The captain backed me up, so I did the right What thing. kind of a checkoff process do you do? You guys have as a as – you, what are you called? Are you called submariners or what? Submariners. Submariners. Yeah, sub Submariners, um, is there like a, a weekly, monthly kind of firearms refreshing course for you know that you have to get checked we, out on the weapons? Or we would every off crew we would go shoot. So um, so we would shoot all the, the the weapons we would use. The the we were qual qualified on the shotgun, the M, uh, M14, and the 1911. Yeah, what shotgun so were you I, using? Uh, I can't remember if it was a Remington or a Mossberg. Now I think it was. I think it might have been the Remington. I have a Mossberg now, but I think we were using the Remington. Yeah, and that's, that's the, the the what is it the uh, eight seventy Remington eight seventy the Remington eight seventy yeah. yeah. Um, and that's something we haven't talked about is uh, you know, we bring up the shotguns is that you're an avid bird hunter. Yeah. And uh, let's. I got a question here. That was the one I was uh, alluding to a second ago. I said, "What is the best bird to hunt if you don't have a bird dog?" That's old weird guy asked that. A dove. Because dove. dove is dove is they fly towards you, so it's a it's the 
I mean, it's the laziest way to hunt. I think it's the funnest. <laughs> I, I didn't. Grow, I didn't grow up dove hunting, but when I moved to the south, they they, they killed doves. One of the tastiest birds too, bacon wrapped dove. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Dove the dove breast uh, wrapped in uh, bacon with some jalapeno. It's delicious. Mm. Mm, but it's up. a blast. I mean, it's so much fun to. Uh, you basically, you know, for those who don't know, have never done it before, you basically sit on a five gallon bucket in the field. And the birds come to you and you stand up and you shoot them and they land typically right at your feet. So yeah. you don't really need a dog. I mean, sometimes they'll get lost in the in the brush, but uh, you really don't need a dog. So I would say dove's probably the best. What's your favorite bird hunt? Well, I, I grew up uh, uh, hunting rough grouse in, in New England. So grouse is absolutely my favorite. We hunt grouse and woodcock. And they're just such a challenge because we spend a lot of time. We'll spend, we'll be in the field maybe hiking eight to 10 miles in a day up the side of mountains and what have you look, you know, you know, trying to find these birds and where their habitat is. So it's, it's very challenging. Um, you, when you shoot, it's what we call snap shooting. So it doesn't matter how good you are, you know, um, you know, with sporting clays, you, you, you don't have, you have to react to these birds a lot quicker so yeah. fast. Yeah. So it's, we, it's snap shooting. It's, it's a blast. Uh, it's, um, it's so much challenge. It's so difficult. Well, you know, I think about it sometimes, you know, I, I used to deer hunt. I don't do it anymore, but you know, deer hunting, you might set up and, you know, you spend your whole season getting your rifle ready and prepping your gear and all that. And you may take one shot in a season. Whereas bird hunting, you're taking, you might take a box, you know, you oh, yeah. a box in a day. So to me, that's more fun. Get a lot of you shooting in. A lot more things to do, a lot more shooting, a lot more of a challenge. Do um, you use a different shotgun for different birds? Yeah, I do. Yeah. But I, but I have a favorite, I have an over and under uh Ruger red label that is just my, it's my baby. Um, I just absolutely love that gun. Uh, it's got shorter barrels because of the, 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 um, where we hunt in, in the brush and what have you. So you want to be a little bit lighter, a little bit shorter. So absolutely love that gun. So they don't make them anymore. Unfortunately. What is it called? The uh, red what? Ruger, it's a Ruger red label. I'm looking yeah, it up now. An, yeah. It's an over and under. Uh, and I could change out the chokes, and so just just a great field gun. Is that it? Yeah, that's my baby. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in the field with 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 that one, so it's a, it's just a great gun. So and just solid. I, I'm a, I'm a Ruger fan. You know, there, you know, when growing up, there used to be a lot of Ruger uh, factories in New England. There still are, mm -hmm. uh, but um, yeah, I just always have, I I have a lot of Rugers. I like Ruger as a brand. I've always thought of it as sort of like the Toyota. It's maybe a little bit cheaper, but you still get good quality. Uh, maybe I don't know. That's that's my view of the world. I'm sure. Not a, I'm I'm not a pure gun guy. Like probably check some out. people on check some out. People are uh, listening to me and yelling at the screen right now. I'm sure. Check out <laughs> so. Nemo Arms. Okay. Okay. Uh, and their their shotguns. You they're they're not cheap. <laughs> <laughs> but they're okay. really nice shot. I think you'll like their their over and unders. Uh, really, they're heirloom quality. Oh, type yeah. firearms. They're they're really nice. So, one of the things that we got to be careful with, like the kind of hunting we do, is because we're in the deep woods and we're going through swamps and trees, is that our our weapons get beat up pretty good. So sure. we we um. It, we're, we're always finding the balance between like a good, solid, dependable firearm and also one yeah. that's, you don't mind getting beat up in the field. Well, and when I say heirloom quality, I mean, it's going to last. It's a durable, solid, yeah. but they're, you know, they're a work of art though. Yeah. They're beautiful. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, we, yeah. And they're not a sponsor either. So, I mean, I just, I'll, I'll check it out. I, I, I the problem is I'll, I'll fall in love with them. I, I it's you so will. easy to fall in love you're with gonna them. You're going to cuss me. You're going to, you're definitely going to cuss me. Yeah. 
So when does hunt hunting season start where you're at for, for birds? Uh, it'd be October. So I'm heading up, I think the second week in October, uh, to, to go up, uh, for the week that we've got, uh, reserved. Okay. So, and we're, we hunt the same land I've been hunting since I was 13 years old. So it's kind of fun to get up there with yeah. friends and Is that family, family land. No, no, no. It's um, it's it's owned by uh, paper mills and the state. There's some sort of a joint uh, okay. arrangement there, but it's uh, the the northern part of New Hampshire is pretty remote. So uh, it's and it's you know you you could drive you can drive for hours on dirt roads up there, and it's it's great. Do you do turkey hunting? No, I've never done turkey hunting. Although oh. um, I know my brother is uh, my brother is a wildlife. Um, well, he's a wildlife biologist, but he's also a hunting and fishing guide for New Hampshire and Maine. And he does turkey hunts, black bear, uh, grouse, woodcock, deer, moose. But um, yeah, he's a big turkey hunter. So one of these days I got to get up there and do a turkey season. So yeah, yeah. definitely. Uh, let's see. There's one question here, Brent Badal on Facebook. What's the most challenging spot you found yourself in as a leader while serving? How did you turn the situation around and keep your people focused? Yeah, I mean, um, I tell a story in all in the same boat about um, we had a, a device inside the reactor that failed um, that um, had to be replaced, and uh, it was it fell within my responsibility to develop the maintenance procedure to go in and actually take that piece of equipment out and replace it with a new piece of equipment. Of course, we did it when the reactor was shut down and we were in port, but um, just to develop the procedure uh, took me months to develop and write the procedure and and because because everything had to be choreographed because you had to limit the amount of time that people were going to be inside the uh the reactor compartment doing this work because it was actually right on top of the reactor itself so we had to have uh, teams go in and there were a limited certain amount of time that could be in there so everything had to be staged and choreographed all the tools had to be checked in checked out and it was one of the most complicated things I'd ever done in my life. And um, and I was young. I was still a new leader uh, on the boat. But after that event, I, I think I solidified my role as the leader of that department. They saw the amount of work I put in and the fact that uh, we did it safely, we did it correctly. And it was the first time that that that, that part had ever been replaced uh, on a Ohio-class submarine. So we had to develop the whole procedure and how to do it. So, yeah, I cool. solidified my role as the leader of that department after that. Yeah. Corey Brown asked, do you know the story about a sub taking out a train? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love, if you want to have never some heard fun, that. Read, read some of the stories of the World War II submarine crews and the officers and men. They did some amazing things. That was the USS Barb. And uh, they they went and uh, took out a train. Uh, they went on land. And I think they took out the bridge that the train was going across and uh, took out the train. So they actually painted a train on there. So you have these uh, war flags that you that you, each ship, and they're sort of like these homemade flags of all the all the shipping that they sink. And they actually had a train on their uh, on their battle <laughs> on their uh, battle flag, which is pretty wild. Yeah, that'd be unique, I bet too. Yeah, yeah, for they a went submarine. On land. They, they actually went on land and, and sabotaged this uh, train track. Yeah. Cool. Uh, he also asked, which sub movie is your favorite? I, I'm an old uh, uh, traditionalist. I, I hunt for Red October. It can't be beat. You know, you, it just, you know. Yeah, I can watch I, that I, over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a classic movie. You know, it's a classic uh, Cold War submarine movie. You know, not very realistic, but it's a great story. So, yeah. So uh, when we were talking uh, yesterday, you were talking about that you are um, uh, a concealed carry. 
yes person um what is your preferred carry yeah it's, i'm afraid to say this because but nobody will judge you i promise <laughs> nobody's gonna judge you you will not be judged maybe a little bit but i have i have uh i carry i have two cars uh it's kahr car firearms yeah, they're out of Worcester, mats and um i have a 380 and a nine millimeter version i have my summer carry my winter carry uh so yeah i like it it's a little gun um, what I like about it is it's, it's a stable platform. It, it's when I shoot it, some of the smaller guns will, will snap when you shoot. And so you snappy. Like, yeah. Yeah. You feel it on your wrists. Well, the, the car is pretty solid. It shoots like a bigger frame gun. And, um, and I just, I just enjoy it. I, I really like the nine millimeter. I got the three, I got the 380 just because it's a little smaller and, uh, it's easier to conceal, but, um, yeah, it's, I, it looks a little bit like a Glock, I guess, but, um, yeah. So, yeah. I, I enjoy it. We, we, you know, my son, my oldest son was getting his concealed carry and he was looking at guns and he eventually got a, got a car nine. He really likes the way it shoots. And I've never had any jams, any problems with it. It's just, it's been reliable for me. So, you know, and that's what I tell people too. You know, I always, people always come up to me and say, Hey, which, which firearm should I get? I'm considering, you know, a carry or whatever. And you know, I liken it to like a pair of shoes. Yeah. So everybody's yeah. got a different size foot. And different yeah. different shoes fit people differently. It's like I can't wear Nikes. Nikes just don't yeah. fit my foot at all, and I don't I don't like Nikes. But you know there are, you know Michael Jordan and people that just you know absolutely swear by Nike. But uh, it, go to the gun range. A lot of these places have rental programs where you can rent the guns. You can try them out uh, before you buy them, and just see what feels better in your hand. And mm. you know that. That's the best way that the best advice that I can give people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing too, is you you know, your concealed carry is going to get beat up a little bit. You know, you're getting in and out of cars. You're, you know, you're, it's going to get scratched. It's going to get have sweat mean, on them. You're going to get sweat. holster yeah, so, marks on them. Yeah. Again, I'm looking for reliability, but I don't want to spend a lot of money either. So that's just me. <laughs> So you're frugal, I, I take it. Uh, well, I want, a, frugal I want in your bang money. for the buck. I want good, you know. So I did a lot of research before I bought the car, and I really, I really liked it once I got it. So that's yeah. that's why I went and got the 380 version of it because I just loved it. So the nine. So. so even being trained in the military, on uh, I would assume you had a Sig. I don't know what did you have. What was your 1911? What was your 1911? It was Colt. 1911. Is it Colt 1911? Okay. Yeah, 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 that's the way I trained on. I. I yeah, I never had anything but a forty-five uh, in in my time in the military. So yeah. that, I'm old school, I guess. Did you get I, to take your service pistol with you, or buy, or get no, the option to no. purchase it? No, in fact, I, I I want, I still want to add a 1911 to my uh, to my, you know, your arsenal. My armory, yeah, my arsenal. But I want, I want to get one that was just like what I had. I want the government yeah. uh, model version of it because it's something I. They're had. out there. They're available. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm looking for one that uh, I can afford. You know me, I'm cheap. You can afford. <laughs> you can afford anything you want. <laughs> you talking about? <laughs> yeah. So um, conceal carry. Uh, you're a hunter. Was there anything else about the hunting, the bird hunting, that you wanted to convey to our our? I know turkey hunting is coming up here. Um, yep. close in Tennessee and uh, probably around the, the country, but, uh, I think you should do that. I think you should go on a turkey hunt. It's completely different than any of the other bird hunts that you've, that you've been on. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd like, I'd like to, 
I, you know, it's funny. And you don't need a dog for turkey hunting either. No, 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 you don't at all. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I just haven't had the opportunity. I just didn't, um, for whatever reason, my, when my brother was getting big in the turkey hunting, I was, I was still in the military, and we, yeah. he's still back in New England. We just didn't, I didn't connect. I didn't have anybody that that wanted. If if, if anyone said, "Do you want to go turkey hunting?" I'd say yes. It just it just hadn't come up. So. Yeah, you haven't haven't uh, been offered the opportunity, huh? Well, yeah, you, you come yeah. down so to Tennessee, and we'll go turkey hunting. <laughs> all right, that sounds good. But uh, no, I mean, think I think um, you know, grouse hunting is sort of like an old, you know, New England thing, you know. And I guess it's kind of fun to do. You know, I think they do it in Michigan as well. And it's, but it's it's typically in the northern climates, and it's just a uh, dog. Uh, no it, dogs required for that. No, we bring dogs. Yeah, do. we bring a dogs. We have two dogs. Um, we have a German short hair pointer, and we have a lab that. Uh, so you have a flusher and a, and a pointer that work together. Sometimes they work together. If things are working well, they work together. <laughs> So let's let's uh, reward our listeners, John. Uh, we like to mm. reward those that participate. And I again, I apologize, Leadheads. It was a late post uh, for your questions. If you get didn't get an opportunity, uh, just keep a lookout. Uh, we're always posting questions for our guest. Uh, that's how you participate. That's how we uh, reward you. If you're sending us Jack Wagon nominations, Leadhead Brigade Hero <laughs> nominations. Uh, if you're uh, leaving comments on the the podcast, you know we go everywhere. We look, we try to reward you for doing uh, awesome stuff to help support the show. And today, John has offered up one each of his books to you listeners. And John, do you want to give those all three to one, or do you want to spread the love and give three different uh, listeners your books? Well, let's let's spread the love. Why not? I like that. I definitely yeah. like that. So of the questions that I read, what was your favorite? Which one was your favorite? Oh, let's see. The one with the the, the submarine movie, favorite submarine movie. Okay. And I think it was the same one. It was the equipment. Uh, Corey Brown asked, uh, what was the, oh, this, he asked several. Yeah. The one I read was, do you know the story about the sub taking out a train? Oh, right. That's the one. Yeah. The, and you know, your favorite sub movie. The barb, so we'll, we'll, that's that's definitely a winner right there. Okay. There you go. Corey Brown, you have won. Which book did, are you, we going to reward? We're going to go with? all in the same boat. That's the, that's the biggie. Ah, nice. Yeah. All in the yeah. same boat for Corey Brown. So, Corey, email me, talkinglet.gmail.com, and I will forward your info on to John uh, for the book. Yeah, I'm trying to think what the first question was. That was a good the very one first one was yeah. the arms of Cascadia. How do you deal with the lack of daylight while underwater? Oh, yeah. With circadian rhythm, what is it? Uh, <laughs> circadian or circadian? I don't know if he spelled it right or not. But <laughs> well, that wins a book just for for that word. For that word, whether he got it right or not. So, <laughs> so we'll go with, uh, I have the watch. I have the watch. So Arms of Cascadia, email me. Let me know which book that you uh, that you won, and uh, I'll forward your info. Of course, we need your, your mailing address as well. Uh, and then book three, who do we want to – are you on uh, social media right now? Are you on Instagram? Can you pull Instagram up? Yeah. Pull it up and then go to that post that I did, and I'll just let you – and while you're doing that, here's here's one that requires no answer, okay? Okay. Slug Nutty. Is it true that in the submarine service that 120 men go down and 60 couples come up? Slug Nutty gets no book. No. 
But he needs to know that it's it, there's an expression in the Navy, it's not gay if it's underway. So just understand that. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. my, my son, my son who was in the Navy, he also said it's not queer if you're by the pier, too. So I don't know what that means, but uh uh yeah. So um just another disassociative term, I guess. But absolutely yeah. Slug wins the smart ass award for this. He gets uh, the smart yeah. ass award. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't I thought the old weird guy had a good question about the birth, best birds to hunt if you don't have a bird dog. There you go. Old weird yeah, guy. I thought that was good. That's a yeah. good. That's a good. So which one did, does he win? Well, we'll give him uh, you have the watch. Well, you know what? Let's give my have the watch because he's probably old. I have he's the watch. Weird. There you go. Yeah. So old weird guy. I have the watch. Email me, talkingletgmail.com. You know the, the routine. Uh. So I, I think that's the, most of the question. I know you posted some, reposted it. Did you get any questions on your your post that you did? I did not, no, no. Oh, come on. I don't think so. Come on, followers of John. Questions, participate. <laughs> that's how you went on this show. You listen, you participate, you win. Uh, I've got a packet of Seal One uh, that I would like to award to one of our listeners. And it's not going to be anybody that posted a question. I am actually going to go to uh, our Instagram page. And if you have tagged me or reshared one of my posts, and I got to go. There's a way to do this on Instagram. So just bear with me. Oh, here it is. Okay. Boom. So here we go. PNW Chupacabra. Chubra. Chupacra, C-H-U-P-A-C-A-B-R-A, tagged me in a post. So if you're an American, (laughs) if you live in America, (laughs) email me, talkingled at gmail.com. You won some seal one. There's the post he did. I don't know if you can see that or not. Oh, yeah. So we do this this other show. It's called the Talking Led AK Corner, John. And we just talk AK-47s on this, this episode. And uh, we get a lot of listeners that are really into the AK-47. So, PNW, you win some SEAL 1. Email me, talkingletgmail.com. And as a reminder, any unclaimed prizes, we send to Sheepdog IA, Sheepdog Impact Assistance. That's an organization, John, that uh, helps our veteran, wounded men and women of the military, law enforcement, first responders, uh, by doing all sorts of things. They have outdoor adventures. They have uh, fundraising events. They have hunts. They have all kinds of cool things that they do to help keep our men and women off the couch and keep them active uh, to help cut down on the suicide rate because we know that, as you, as you just said, when they retire, they still have that desire to to serve, to do something they put together disaster recovery missions. So when there's flooded areas or there's disaster by Mother Nature, tornadoes, hurricanes, whatever it may be, they'll put together disaster recovery teams to go out and help, uh, whether it's cutting down trees or putting down sandbags or providing food or uh, whatever's needed. Um, Sheepdog Impact Assistance. you got to check, check them out, sheepdogia.org. And go donate, donate your time, donate your money, donate your resources. Um, they they definitely need your your help. Sergeant Major Lance Nutt, we've had him on the show several times. So 
any unclaimed prizes, we automatically donate those to, to Sheepdog Impact Assistance. Great. Um, but great show, man. I appreciate you, John, taking the time to be on. I know it's probably not your normal interview, but... <laughs> Uh, no, not at all. But I loved it. I I was just intimidated with all these, you know, with the firearm questions. I don't want to say something that's yeah. Not, expecting uh, a show called Talking Lead, and it's <laughs> talking lead. It wasn't talking lead. It was talking lead. When, when did you have that epiphany that it wasn't talking lead? When 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 we talked yesterday, <laughs> you're I had like no, no idea. I, so I do so many podcasts that I didn't. You know, I didn't. I see lead in the title of most podcasts I'm on. So I just saw lead and I'm. Oh yeah. I get that all the time too. Uh, I've got my truck wrapped with our, our logo and you know, I've got my shirts and everything. People come up to me and go, what's talking lead. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I was like, well, we're a dog training service. And (laughs) (laughs) I was like, you couldn't tell with the bullets and all our sponsors that are on the the vehicle. And it's like, yeah, here's your sign. I, I, I get it now. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm glad it worked out though. And, uh, I, again, I do really appreciate you taking the time to be on. I, I, you know, this has been one of my favorite interviews that I've done. We've never had, uh, a submariner, submariner on the show before. So it's very interesting. Yeah. We're, we're, we're one of the branches of the military that's kind of small and not a lot of people who, you know, have served on submarines. So, yeah. uh, yeah, we're a little bit of a rare bird. So yeah, it's fun. To, fun. To, it's fun to talk about it because it was such a big part of my life, and it's something I just you know dreamed as a youth to 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 want to do, and I get a chance to do that, and um, you know serve serve our country during a whole different time. You know, people don't, don't probably War. don't realize what what the Cold War was like, but um, but you know with Reagan coming into office and you know building up the Navy and you know winning the Cold War, you know it's fun to be a part of that and uh, to kind of write that chapter be a part of that chapter, be part of history. And uh, yeah, yeah. It's a good launching point for our career, for sure. Absolutely. And uh, one more time, give everybody where they can go, uh, your website, your social meds. I want yeah. you Leadheads to go and follow John and let him know that you're a uh, Leadhead Brigade and you appreciate him being on the show, even though he thought it was a, a leadership show. <laughs> <laughs> no, every you know my website is johnsrenny.com and um you can spell john any way you want it'll get there but um all my social media links are out there i'm very active on twitter i'm very active on instagram uh i run a podcast called deep leadership it's on every podcast uh, station we interview uh military leaders business leaders entrepreneurs um authors researchers so it's all about leadership so if you're listening in and you're like leading a company or you're work you work in management and you're uh, in, we're at work. This is a good place to go and learn some skills, to get better, uh, to manage your career better, to, to be able to get the best results from your team. And um, yeah, it's all about, for me, it's all about building a world with better bosses. That's what I write my books for. That's why I do my podcast. It's all about trying to make better bosses in the next generation. See if we can do a little bit better than we did this one. So, <laughs> Well, you just, you just did a great job leading uh, on this podcast. So thank you. Again, for your time, Lead Heads, again, go show him some love. Show all our sponsors love, Mission First Tactical. Go to missionfirsttactical.com. Use the code LEADHEAD. You're going to get 25 or 20% off. I'd uh, like to give you an additional 5%. Maybe we can talk Dave into that. Uh, but uh, go check them out, Mission First Tactical. Seal1.com uh, for all your gun cleaning, lubrication, and corrosive protection. It works on anything. It'll work great on your shotgun too, John. So yeah. I'll, uh, I'll have some sent to you. I'll send you some Seal oh, One. Look at that. Um, we'll send you some Mission First stuff too. Seal One.com, use the code LEADHEAD. You're going to get 25% off there. Uh, 
1776 United. You like the T-shirt that I'm wearing? You get our, our talking lead, talking lead. If you if you're so inclined, uh, T-shirts. Uh, you go to 1776 United. Um, if you've seen some of my posts, I've worn some of their other shirts. You can anything there. Talking lead is the code. Twenty percent off. Uh, I was talking about our flashlights earlier from ASP USA, and I don't have them handy now. Here's one right here. Uh, they got cool, awesome flashlights. They do all kinds of different trickeries, uh, but great flashlights. Uh, ASP USA, use the code all caps LEADHEAD to get 15% off. Factory 47 for our AK Corner t-shirts uh, and sweaters and sweatshirts and all the cool stuff that they have there. And then IWIUS, thank them. Let them know that your LEADHEADS don't have a discount code for you there yet. You can go to Keltec and get a nice discount in their pro shop. Use the code LEADHEAD, 15% off at Keltec. Anything but their firearms, you're going to get a discount there. But go show all our sponsors and friends of the show some love and uh, let them know you're LEADHEAD. I'm sure if they don't have a discount code, we can get one set up for you. Just ask. All right, LEADHEADS, that does it for another episode of the Talking Lead Podcast. Appreciate each and every one of you tuning in every week and supporting the show and supporting our sponsors. And until then, as always, keep your loved ones close. And keep your firearms closer. And remember, you have the watch.